I've got my picks now. I just finished. So I'll, I'll unveil them actually here while I'm talking to you tonight. That sound good? Historic. This, 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 this is great radio. <laughs> Thinking out loud here. Do people actually listen to these episodes? A handful do. Yeah, about as many as appear on them. Well, last year it was Jesus, which got me pretty uh, close, you know, but uh, ultimately uh, Jesus forsaked me, forsook, forsook me, forsaken me, however he said it. He let me down. Yeah. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules. And at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. And tonight, really, uh, no playbook at all, just chaos, I hope, because our guest is the illustrious crackpot historian, also known as El Gogo. He's the OG AG. Uh, I heard a rumor that he was the driver of the double Dutch bus. Uh, that's a really obscure reference for some folks. And, of course, he's the wrong Reverend Houdini Kundalini of the Church of Unwavering Indifference, Talking about my good friend Adam Go Rightly, finally back on the program. You know, LeBron James goes back to Cleveland. Adam Go Rightly comes back to BOA Audio. I, I'm sensing a theme here in, in the midst. Hello there. How's my volume? <laughs> it seems okay. You got to talk a little bit, otherwise I can't tell how it is. But I feel okay. like I'm much louder one, than you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. How's that? There you go. All right. It seems fine to good. me. Okay. Yeah, we'll rely on the folks. What folks at home don't know is we were trying to figure this all out moments before uh, we went live. So this is much yeah, like the introduction I, there, compelling compelling radio. <laughs> bunch of the names. Anyway, the name well, welcome back, buddy. But Thanks. Yeah, it was my fault. I was supposed to call in a few minutes early, but uh, oh, you know how that goes sometimes. Yeah, thanks Please. for having me on. These things happen. No yes. problem, dude. It's a beautiful night, and I'm looking forward to talking to you. I really uh, dug the book a lot. I didn't mention it here in the beginning. I kind of alluded to it, though, uh, as I called you the wrong Reverend Houdini Kundalini. Uh, of course, the new book is Historia Discordia, The Origins of the Discordian Society, and it's fantastic, man. As I said uh, on Facebook when we were setting this up, uh, I really, really enjoyed it quite a bit. I think it's, uh, I think it's fantastic. Great, man. Glad to hear you uh, dig it. Well, tell people how it all came together, because I, 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 as I said to you, it's it's a really interesting sort of mix of uh, of like all kinds of interesting. I don't know how you describe them. I guess paper paper artifacts in a way, you know, letters, postcards, stickers, things like that that are all uh, like you know copied. I guess you could say in the book, and it's a uh, it's really amazing. It reminded me a lot of uh, the Bill Cooper book, but almost like the antithesis of the Bill Cooper book. It was sort of like a fun <laughs> version. A fun kids version of the Bill Cooper book, almost. But tell folks how it came together. Describe it a little bit, because uh, you know I, I really uh, want them to know about it. I'd be glad to, but before we get into that, what's the double Dutch bus? Uh, I have no idea. You don't know that old song? I've had it stuck I in my head for like so. two days now. <laughs> what's that? Maybe, it, maybe, it, maybe I do. Can you hum a few bars? Probably not. It's, uh, it's, it's like an old funk song. It's like an old mm. funk song. Yeah. No, it doesn't ring a bell. I'll have to look into it. But, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, You'll love it. You'll love it. 
<laughs> I told you for that. Yeah. The uh, so tell yeah. <laughs> the story, the story of Discordia, the origins of the Discordian Society, and all of this kind of came about because of my uh, interest in Carrie Thornley many years ago. The first time I was on your show was, pro- I think it was your first season, and we did a show on oh, uh, yeah. the book The Prankster and the Conspiracy. Mm-hmm. I think that was in the first year. It was either 2000. Oh, I do. You were a first season, that, yeah. Yeah, which was what, three? Uh, Let me see. Whatever year, don't you know what? (laughs) (laughs) You don't even know what Double Dutch Bus is. Come on now. (laughs) (laughs) I found it here. I'll I'll post it for the folks in the chat. But yeah, you you came on back in in the uh, first season, and you were talking about the Carrie Thornley book. Yeah, so I got interested in him back in the... uh, Way back in the 80s, late 80s, when I was doing a lot involved uh, in writing for zines and trading for zines, and I came across a name, Carrie Thornley, um, apparently, you know, sometimes posting conspiracy-related articles, but I couldn't make a lot of sense of them back then, but something intriguing about him, so I remembered the name then in the uh, early 90s. There was a book by Jonathan Vankin, Conspiracies, Cover-Ups, and Crimes, that uh, the first chapter in the book was dedicated to Thornley. That was probably about 91. And his story, basically, was he had written a book about Oswald three years before the Kennedy assassination. He had been indicted by Jim Garrison. Garrison claimed he was one of the Oswald doubles, a CIA agent and all this, and... uh, he was also one of the founders of the spoof religion called the Discordian Society. And uh, in the in the book, the interview from that book, he told Vankin, uh, this was like in the once again the early 90s that he believed he had been an MK Ultra victim and part of a Nazi breeding experiment and all this wild stuff. So I was really fascinated. And Vankin said at that time he was considering writing a biography. And I was I was really intrigued. I wanted to see that when it came out, man, because the guy was so fascinating. And uh, Vincent never got around to it. And I started collecting material on Thornley. I thought if I ever have enough material, I'll start a book, you know. So around 2000, I was more uh, seriously considering that. And uh, I got an email. Not that I told this many times, but it's <laughs> worth repeating. That know how the, all this unraveled. Uh, I got an email yeah, it's from like, the guy named... It's like canonical. You have, you have, to, you have to tell it, you know. It's, yep. uh, it's part of the, the big story in a way. So, yeah, I got an email from this Newport character, and this was at an email address that only a few people knew, uh, some friends and families, but wasn't related to my uh, Go Rightly writings or anything like that. So hmm. nobody would really would have known how to email me here, especially somebody I didn't know who said his name was Bob Newport, and he was just passing on the news that Greg Hill, the founder of Discordianism, had died in uh, July of 2000. So it was July of 2000 I got this email. I go, see, I wasn't that aware of Discordianism, but I knew Kerry Thornley was involved in Discordianism, so I asked him, did you know uh, Thornley too? And he emailed back, yeah, I Grew up with the guys. I'm a co-founder of uh, Discordianism. I knew both Thornley and Hill very well. So that was curious. I didn't think a lot of it at the time. How do you know to contact me? 
So we stayed in touch, and probably it was uh, the uh, next year that uh, I met with him and Robert Anton Wilson. Newport was old friends with Wilson, too. And Newport brought along the Discordian Archives, something he called the Discordian Archives. It was just an armload of stuff, and he let me borrow yeah. it, and I scan- scanned it and some of that stuff, and I used some of it in that first book and I there was enough there that I thought, man, this could be another book project and I asked him maybe somewhere down the road uh to do another book project. And he was always cool with that. He was Newport was talking at that time that he might put these materials up on a website or or something of that nature. So Yeah. We fa- fast forward to two thousand and nine and I'd stayed in contact with uh Newport, and every few years, hey, you still down with me doing the project? He's always cool with it. Then 2009, I contacted him, and he said, yeah, I'm still cool with it. When you're down here, you can pick up everything. So I didn't know what he, I, he meant. I thought uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I'd seen everything. And so, yeah, I got together with him, and it was several boxes of materials, uh, which has led to uh, – these book projects, the website, and I asked Newport uh, at that time again, how did he know to contact me? And he had uh, he had no memory of how the, all of that came about. Yeah. So there was kind of a mystery there. Maybe there is some rational explanation, but as I got deeper involved in this uh, project and uh, the Thornley book and subsequent books, there's been all kinds of synchronicities. Uh, like that. So, um, yeah, Newport, uh, he got into landscape uh, painting, and uh, that became his passion, so he wasn't going to do the website, so we launched the uh, website as well, historiadiscordia.com, and there's these different books. Uh, and the current one is, yeah, Historia Discordia, same name as the uh, website that shares a lot of these rare materials that went into the founding birth of the Discordian Society and how these uh, things, activities, evolved into the Illuminatus Trilogy by Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea, who were both heavy into Discordianism and uh, became a big influence on the uh, counterculture. Yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing. So what were these, when you got these boxes, part of me... My OCD-ness of it, because I've heard the story a bunch of times, and I read it in the in the book too. And part of me is just like, describe these boxes. Was it was it just a mess of stuff, or was it f- at least well enough put together that you could kind of like leaf through it at your leisure, if you will, to uh, try and figure it all out? Yeah, Greg Hill. I mean, he called them the archives, so they were uh, organized by uh, different subject matter. For instance, all. He had the uh, different editions of the Principia Discordia. They were all in the Principia Discordia file. So everything was broken up like that. There was a Thornley Thornley JFK uh, several files that uh, basically led me to uh, this uh, book project book that will be published in October that gets more into the Garrison investigation. So things were pretty... uh, organized for the most part. It was just uh, basically going through everything, and a lot of it had been sitting around kind of in a storage room for a long time, so it it had that, you know, (laughs) 
it has the smell of oldness and insects getting into it and that type of stuff. But I went through everything, and there was uh, materials, I mean, just maybe old newspapers and stuff that weren't relevant. So I got that and kind of reorganized it, refiled it again to make more sense to me. Then uh, it's actually in uh, two parts. I have part of it here in the... Uh, my secretive lair in uh, Central California, <laughs> then <laughs> call those the Discordian Archives West. And then there's more on the uh, East Coast, uh, Discordian Archives East, because we uh, got a hold of some other materials. So the guy who's the publisher for uh, Fiji Press has some of the materials, as well as uh, what's called the, uh, we're calling the, uh, calling PUD, the uh, paste-up discordia, which are the actual uh, pages that uh, Greg Hill pasted together to make <laughs> the most famous edition of the uh, Principia discordia, the, which is the fourth edition. So those things, those are kind of like a work of art that we hope to publish that as well in a book so it can be displayed to show how it was put together and some of the... Hmm background material on how all that came to uh, came about, and we'd like to eventually put those on display, but that's a, a big and costly uh, project. You know, it might be something we could do with a Kickstarter or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's, you kind of touched on it. That's what I liked a lot about the book. I kind of said at the beginning here. Uh, it's It's like a combination of interesting sort of philosophical ideas and also sort of a look at this uh, what was going on in the sort of the counterculture at the time this sort of historical glimpse you know like a like a peeped diary of sorts uh, in a twisted way and then and then also sort of this really compelling artwork and stuff really cool designs mm. and things so there's so much going on there yeah you know for, well, part of it there's a lot of people involved you'll see the collages Greg Hill the kind of mastermind with Thornley of this was a very great uh, collage maker, and that's the way he put together the fourth edition. I don't know if you, you've probably never even seen the uh, fourth edition. That's not in that book, but I have a uh, copy I could uh, send you. And that was, you know, the fourth edition is the most famous one that, uh, that kind of inspired, uh, influenced uh, Luminatus and all that. But um, as far as the material and uh, what you have, it shows, yeah, some of the early stuff. Uh, how it all came about. I don't get too much, uh, well, some of the material covers uh, how Discordianism came about. Uh, you know, it was uh, basically Greg Hill and Kerry Thornley as teenagers uh, hanging out in uh, bowling alleys, and uh, they had always said they hung out in bowling alleys because they they drink coffee and they'd be able to stay up late. But ap actually, I learned that uh, it was the beer that attracted them. They could... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> buy it as teenagers and so yeah kids have been doing that in bowling alleys for years and years and they uh they were heavy heavy thinkers you know and they so they'd have uh conversations about uh, philosophy and politics or and whatnot and they got talking about uh chaos and and disorder uh in the world why was there so much they got in kind of an argument about it and um you know, Greg Hill's position was basically, well, there really is no order in the universe. 
it's basically just a chaotic universe. We overlay this perception that there is some type of order, you know, but there isn't. And they got talking about, well, all these different religions have made up of these deities, you know, that uh, supposedly brought order into the world. What we need is our own religious figure to be the god of chaos. And Greg Hill said there already is one in Greek mythology, which is Eris or Discordia, the Greek goddess of chaos and discord. So that kind of, those conversations launched the uh, spoof religion of Discordianism, you know. And they, so huh. they were just uh, in high school then. And uh, as and it was just them, maybe Bob Newport. <laughs> that was the Discordian yeah. Society, just kind of an in-joke between these uh, dudes. And so Thornley went off and had his adventures. He met Oswald and all that uh, stuff. And in the uh, mid-'60s, they started coming up with all these crazy uh, Discordian religious tracks. They got back into that, and they put together the first edition of the Principia Discordia, or How the West Was Lost. And the legend behind uh, that for many years was that it had uh, been reproduced after hours in Jim Garrison's office, of all people, uh, in around uh, 1965, because uh, Hill and Thornley lived on and off in uh, New Orleans as well, and they had a friend who worked as a, a typist, in Garrison's office. Of course, Garrison later on went to uh, Target Thornley as one of the uh, people involved in the grand plot that killed uh, JFK. So that was the legend. Robert Anton Wilson said that in uh, Cosmic Trigger, but it wasn't actually the uh, case. Uh, The uh, friend they had in uh, Garrison's office was named Lane Kaplinger, who was friends with Hill and Thornley and also happens to be the sister of Grace Kaplinger, who we now know as Grace Zabrinsky, who played Laura Palmer's mother in Twin Peaks and has appeared in a lot of other stuff. <laughs> only you and, only you know of her. I've never uh, heard of that. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> it, it goes on and on. So I've been in contact with Grace. She's a cool person uh, oh, I'm sure. just to get more uh, background. So I, I finally asked the question, well, did Lane uh, copy these in Garrison's office to make the first edition in 65? And she said, no, not not exactly. She actually did, but she did copy some things that Thornley had written about the Discordian Society more like in 61 or 62. So the legend is kind of correct that, uh, that some of the stuff they came up with in 61 and 62 probably uh, influenced the... Uh, that uh, first edition of the Principia Discordia, and maybe some of that stuff ended up in there. So it's <laughs> it gets, it's kind of a convoluted uh, story, but uh, and so that, oh, yeah, kudos so that to God. Trying to figure yeah, trying to figure all this stuff out. Huh? It's um, so that <laughs> first edition, which every the legend was, uh, it was pretty much lost. There was only five copies made at the time. And so going through the Discordian archives, I found that I went, holy crap, that's the uh, holy grail of uh, Discordianism. So that's reproduced in this uh, book as well, as well as uh, uh, a lot of other stuff we can go into. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, you 
He touched on it. First of all, uh, I think I know the answer to this, but it's, uh, it's it's compelling and interesting. And Red Sun Superman in the chat mentions it here. Uh, you actually get into it in the book a bit. Uh, but he wants to know, is it true... This is kind of a softball for you, because I think it's a... Because <laughs> I, I get to answer this one. Is it true that the Principia Discordia was part of the Kennedy assassination records, and do you know why they were included? Yes. <laughs> and yes. Um, let me see how to phrase it. What they were... Uh, what they came out of was the uh, House Select Committee on Assassinations. And I'll go into this even more in the uh, book that will come out in October, uh, there were portions of uh, the first edition in those records, along as well as some other uh, Discordian materials. Uh, it's funny, there, there's a few pages that resemble the first edition I have, but it was like somebody took them and retyped them. Um, and so there's oh, portions... Yeah, so I'm not sure uh, how it all came about. I think it came afterwards, and maybe Carrie formally retyped some of the stuff to distribute them to people, is my guess. What, what also came out of the uh, those House Select uh, Committee files um, when I started looking through them, and I looked through them when I uh, was writing the prints during the conspiracy, um, the main witness against uh, Thornley in the Garrison investigation was this lady named Barbara Reed, who was quite a colorful, colorful bohemian uh, character in the French Quarter. And she was also a friend of Carrie Thornley's. And as it turns out, she was also a member of the Discordian Society. And you'll oh, see wow. uh, in, the, in the book there, Story of Discordia, we reprinted her certificate, her Discordian... Uh, they call it the Legion of Dynamic Discord Certificate, showing she was a member of the Discordian Society and it's signed by none other than the Bull Goose of Limbo, who was <laughs> Carrie Thornley. And so nice. that's, that's, in, that's in those JFK files. And at the time, I was kind of puzzled. Why did some of this Discordian material end up? What, what happened? Uh, Barbara Reed, like I said, she became this... She claimed that she saw Oswald and uh, Thornley together in New Orleans. And there was a period where that was possible, a one-week window in, like, uh, 63, where they could have been there. Through my research, I, I, I don't uh, believe in it. I think it's even possible that she might have seen Thornley with, an Oswald, uh, with the Oswald double, but whatever the case, uh, she was this witness against... Uh, Thornley, really the only, well, there's only two witnesses that signed uh, affidavits, and the other guy was named Reverend Raymond Shears, who was uh, pretty crazy, later uh, made uh, threats against President Jen, uh, Johnson's life. So you have these two sketchy witnesses. But uh, So how this stuff ended up in the uh, those JFK, in the National Archives is where they're at, in the House Select Committee, assassination files. How that stuff ended up there, I believe, was Barbara Reed, this witness, uh, also became one of Garrison's unofficial investigators, and she's working with this guy named Harold Weisberg. And um, they caught wind of, you know, he was interested in the Discordian Society, and they, he suspected that they were up to no good, and <laughs> let, uh, informed Garrison of that, and 
so they started, you know, the speculations run, ran rapid that the uh, Discordian Society was some type of CIA front organization. <laughs> and uh, this uh, led to what's known in the annals of, uh, can we use uh, blue language on your uh, show here? Oh, yeah, you can use any kind of language. But let me cut you off because I want, uh, okay. no, you know what, go ahead with, the, go ahead with what you got because uh, I'll circle back around to the, prin, prin, is it Principia Discordia? It, yeah, it's either one. Did I, did I answer? Uh, is it Red Superman? Did I answer his question? I'm almost. I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no! I didn't mean to interrupt I you there. To make, I, I, think, um, sure I think I heard all the points. Yeah. Yeah, I think we covered all that. All right. Um, yeah, well, go ahead with the operation. Uh, go ahead with the. Op- you can go ahead. I want you to say the, the blue language, though. That way, I don't get in trouble with the uh, with the FCC. Got right. Uh, go, tell us the Operation Mindfuck stuff. Around 67, no, this was 68, when that, uh, was, uh, that Garrison investigation was going full force, 68 and 69. By this time, Thornley was friends with Robert Anton Wilson. And uh, like I said, Garrison had all these, uh, he had his official investigators, but he also had a group that became known as the Irregulars, just different uh, JFK assassination researchers who uh, ended up in New Orleans and run around uh, coming up with their own evidence. And this one guy, Harold Weisberg, really <laughs> added in for uh, Thornley, as did uh, Garrison. So there was another investigator by the name of Alan Chapman who believed that uh, the Bavarian Illuminati was behind the assassination. He fed Garrison was getting fed all kinds of crazy information. This is one of the things. And when Thornley caught wind of this, he thought, uh, well, let's screw with him all the more since he's been screwing with me so much. And they launched Operation Mindfuck and pretended to be, they came up with this Bavarian Illuminati letterhead and uh, he would sign it uh, from his uh, Discordian persona, Omar Khayyam Ravenhurst, you know, and they'd send letters to... Uh, uh, Garrison and other people saying, confirming they were indeed the Illuminati, but instead of being involved in the assassination, they're here to illuminate the uh, masses. And Robert Ancon Wilson got involved with this. It was basically, you know, this major prank. And they used Operation Mindfuck and this Bavarian Illuminati mythos in a lot of other ways over the years. And there's a number of these letters uh by Wilson and uh, Thornley and Greg Hill on the uh, Bavarian Illuminati stationery you'll see in this Historia Discordia book chronicling that period. And a lot yeah. of that, okay. a lot of mm-hmm. that <laughs> craziness led to uh, a lot of the stuff you see in the Illuminatus trilogy. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's... I, I lost my train of thought there. Well, t- let's circle back here to the uh, Principia Discordia because you you said in you were talking about how I haven't seen the fourth edition. That's the most famous. Uh, but I thought it was cool that the you say in the book the print the first edition it says it's the first time in print in over fifty years. So that's pretty pretty uh, cool uh, thing to be able to put together in a lot of ways. But talk about mm-hmm. I guess what happened here. It evolved into different different sort. They had other editions and they got more elaborate. It totally changed the direction. When, they, when Thornley and uh, Hill launched the Discordian Society, if you look through that first edition, you can see how uh, 
they kind of set up this crazy organization. And if you were going to be, if you were going to become a pope in the Discordian society, you had to be ordained by Greg Hill, who was Malachlips the Younger, or Harry Thornley, Omar Raven, uh, or uh, Omar Khayyam Ravenhurst. Um, and around, so that was 65, and around 69, Greg said, screw this organization. Anybody, man or woman, who wants to declare themselves a pope should be able to do so. And he totally changed the direction of the Principia Discordia at that uh, point, too, and made it more of a collaborative, collaborative art uh, project, in a sense. And they developed these things called groovy packs, where... Greg Hill would come up with some funny Discordian items and whatever, throw it in a letter, maybe throw in a roach in there or something <laughs> off the wall and come up with a list of names of different Discordians and they'd pass this around to maybe a dozen people. And that, when he'd get it back, it would be cool stuff, you know. And so a lot of these materials, he'd cut and paste them into subsequent editions of the uh, Principia Discordia, which, you know, it became this collaborative effort, this funky kind of uh, psychedelic era, humorous, uh, but also there's aphorisms and stuff in there that uh, just kind of a cool little uh, book. And I have a copy I can uh, send you if you've never seen the fourth edition. And so that that is the most famous one. um, And then in like 70, uh, they printed uh, 500 copies of that. And that got out oh, wow. into the counter, counterculture at that time. You could, might see it in the head shops. What the hell is this, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so, but still, 500 copies ain't that much. Then when the uh, Luminatus trilogy came out in uh, 76, or 75, excuse me, it had references to the uh, Principia Discordia. Just little small references, you know, and it's also yeah. quoted... Uh, uh, Malachlitz the Elder, Younger and uh, took quotes from Omar uh, Ravenhurst's uh, The Honest Book of Truth. And it, When I first read the Illuminatus, I didn't know anything of this background, so I'd uh, see all this stuff and I thought, just a bunch of weird made-up uh, <laughs> stuff that went right over your head pretty much. But all this was actually based on real materials, the Principia Discordia, and I also came across... The Complete Honest Book of the uh, Truth, which we print in uh, Historia Discordia. And I uh, forgot where I was going. <laughs> just, we were just talking about the Principia Discordia and how it's changed over the years. Well, well while you were mm-hmm. saying all that, though, it kind of uh, made me think, in a way, is, I, I guess beyond whatever meager amount they got for the printing of all the books, it's, it's interesting that this whole thing seems like it was just... It was it like for, I don't want to say for fun, but it wasn't for profit. Let's say, right? They were never trying to like make a buck off of this thing. It was all for the sheer enjoyment of of being a part of it, right? Oh, totally. Yeah, it had nothing to do with <laughs> making money. That's cool because it's like different from any other religion. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, you could buy it. It was uh, he'd sell them for a dollar or trade something back uh, then. And when I was going through the archives, I was actually found a couple letters he never got uh, around the opening where there was a couple bucks for a, a copy of the Principia Discordia uh, in envelopes he had never opened. But uh, so, yeah, that, 
that was uh, so 1970, 500 copies, really underground. It's mentioned in the Illuminatus trilogy, and people were going, "What's this Principia Discordia? Was that actually something?" And uh, the guy who uh, was the publisher at Loon Panics uh, got a hold of Greg Hill and approached him about uh, publishing the thing, and that's when it really got mass some large distribution, like in the late uh, 70s through uh, Wooden Panics. Then even later, uh, Stephen Jackson Games, you know, the game maker uh, dude, he came out with a uh, edition of the Principia Discordia with some added materials he threw in there. So, you know, it's evolved over the years. Not, I have one of the Wooden Panics uh, copies I can uh, send you. And so it's been a great, you know, a huge um, influence, but it's not always obvious what the influence or who, <laughs> nobody really knows who Greg Hill was. And uh, hmm. so in a way, it's kind of a hidden influence, but it's definitely been uh, an influence on popular culture. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like a kind of like the double dutch bus reference earlier. It's like if you know what it is, you you laugh and, and you enjoy it. If you, if you don't, then you're like, oh, what the hell? What the hell is this guy talking about? Um, yeah. So with this game guy, could just this guy who has a game company, he can just print up his own version of the book. Well, that's the deal. The fourth edition, uh, Greg Hill uh, produced it to be a term he came up with called uh, copy left, all rights reversed. Anybody could. Uh, republish it and copy it. So that's why other people have uh, republished it over the years. He, he kind of came up with some novel concepts or some, a thing called creative uh, commons now that puts stuff in the public domain like that. And that was kind of Greg Hill's idea for the uh, Principia Discordia that uh, he wanted you know, people to get out there get it out there and people could see it so it was basically a copy left thing and there's been subsequent editions you know after the, the limponics uh, some have been pretty decent others have been uh, crap <laughs> yeah and I guess that uh, makes so sense, yeah, yeah if you're ordering a uh, copy of the Principia Discordia you got to make sure what you're getting because you could get uh, something uh, funky that they just took all the great graphics and everything out of, out of the uh, book and you'll just get text which doesn't make uh, any sense unless you have all the other cool things uh, all the different collages and stuff that Greg Hill included in the uh, fourth edition hmm. now when you talked about Operation Mindfuck you in the uh, the Bavarian Illuminati, did it, I think you kind of alluded to this in the book, but uh, maybe you could talk more about it. It seemed like they, these guys bombarding all these places with stuff uh, allegedly from the Bavarian Illuminati, kind of sparked it as a meme in a way, like in in this sort of zeitgeist, if you will, uh, sort of gave it fuel beyond just that one guy who was talking about it. Well, they definitely helped move it along. I mean, there there was probably a few people talking about it, but it was a weird. Uh, Dill either had like uh, Christian ministers or the John Birch Society were talking a bit about the Illuminati. So Hill and Thornley, they really did some deep research into the backgrounds of the Illuminati, and a lot of that comes out in the Illuminatus trilogy. But according to Wilson and Cosmic uh, Trigger, once they started uh, kind of launching Operation Mind 
fuck and putting out this Bavarian Illuminati meme out there. It pushed the magic button and all all of a sudden uh, got seemed to get things rolling and the legends of the uh, Illuminati started appearing all over the place. So they, they think uh, Wilson felt he had a hand in creating that myth. And one of the ways they uh, did it was uh, part of Operation Mindfuck uh, occurred in the uh, pages of Playboy because uh, Wilson was one of the editors for the Playboy Forum during this period, which was uh, basically a column that, dealt with civil liberties and that type of stuff. And he was getting all these letters, of, you know, people talking about abuses of civil liberties, this and that, and he would answer them. Then, but then he was getting a bunch of far-out uh, conspiracy stuff, too, that <laughs> was just too wild for Playboy to deal with. And that's how he and Bob Shea, they started talking about this stuff. Uh, that kind of led to the Illuminatus trilogy. But on one occasion... <clears throat> to put this meme more into uh, popular culture. Uh, Wilson, in cahoots with, uh, formerly to a certain degree, as well as Bob Shea, planted this letter in the uh, Playboy forum asking, basically asking, they heard rumor from this old man, uh, mysterious old guy that told somebody that uh, all the major political assassinations were... uh, done by this, uh, you know, obscure group called the Bavarian Illuminati that talked a bit about that in the uh, history. And then Wilson, he answered the uh, letter. <clears throat> and so it's, it was in the pages of Playboy. And that helped kind of, uh, I think, set the uh, meme forward, too, into culture. Uh, as time progressed, uh, People even suspected uh, Wilson of <laughs> Robert Anton Wilson being a uh, head of the Illuminati, and uh, <laughs> Wilson Wilson never discouraged that. He, he would neither <laughs> confirm nor deny because he knew it probably helped sales of the Illuminatus. In yeah. fact, he helped helped encourage those uh, rumors. I asked him, and this is a story I repeat quite a bit. One time. I was talking to him on the phone. I have a recording of this somewhere. I asked, you know, is it true you're the head of the uh, Illuminati? And he said, no, I'm the toe. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, whatever the case, can you appoint me a uh, high priest of the Bavarian uh, Illuminati? And he said, you are here appointed. So not only am wow. I uh, a bunch of other stuff, I'm a high priest in the Illuminati. I'm gonna have to. I'm literally putting this right now into your uh, into your bio here. High priest <laughs> of the Bavarian Illuminati, right? I guess you can roll yeah. either way. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Illuminati. Bavarian Illuminati. Yeah, we already have quite the lengthy intro, but I'll I will add it in. I know. I will definitely add it in. Um, now, did they ever? I thought this was interesting. You reprint a ton of these a ton of these Operation Mindfuck letters. Did they? Talk a little bit more about who these people were that they were sending these things to. Did they ever get any responses from from these folks? I guess I, 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 I was thinking about this. I didn't get a chance to look back at it. I don't think they ever included, like, phone numbers. So everything was done via the mail, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure you see what you see there. Uh, <laughs> they yeah. occasionally, I think, got some uh, responses. But, yeah, it was just to uh, tweak uh, – 
the different people they sent these letters to and see what kind of reaction. Another thing, uh, deal they got involved with was called uh, the Jake, J-A-K-E. And um, this was another deal where they'd say on a certain date, let's bombard whoever this person is with uh, letters uh, in their Discordian letter writing circle. So the date would come. And none of this was really mean-spirited, you know. A lot of it, it might be somebody who's working in a newspaper columnist or somebody they were, they were digging and they were trying to promote Principia Discordia or uh, the Illuminatus Trilogy. So on that appointed day, the, whoever this person was would open <laughs> up their mailbox and you know there'd be 23 letters there from all these crazy people <laughs> coming from different parts of the uh, country that were part yeah. of the this group called the Discordian Societies well th- just to just to sort of hone in on a point here that all this stuff was generally I mean I'm sure they talked on the phone sometimes but I'm trying to like take people back to the to the time where it's it's amazing oh, oh, the- you know they're waiting I mean, for stuff to come in the mail for to each other and 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 plan things and stuff like that. It's kind of and as oh, you said earlier, passing these packets around and it, yeah. it, it's people don't go to the mailbox waiting for cool stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a different era. So talk. I, I see what I see what you're asking. Did they also talk to each other on uh, the phone and get together? And uh, yeah, they did. But you know, some of them were di- in different parts of the uh, country. For instance. Uh, Wilson and Robert Shea, when he was working uh, at Playboy, you know, they were in uh, Chicago. Later, Wilson moved out to the West Coast, and at that time, uh, Greg Hill was out there, and Camden Daenerys, and some of these other people. And I don't get into it in Historia Discordia, but there was one period, uh, maybe I, I print some of the stuff, but there was one period where Greg Hill... Kerry Thornley, Robert Anton Wilson, Bob Newport, the guy I mentioned before, Camden Benares, they're all basically within a uh, five to ten mile radius of each other along the Russian River there in uh, California. A, th- yeah. a stone's throw from Bohemian Grove of <laughs> all places. And uh, the founder of uh, Scordianism ran a movie theater there called the Cinema Rio. And so they were all so they had a network. They'd get together uh, occasionally, and they'd uh, party, you know. So, but it, you know, it was more kind of random. Uh, some of the interactions between these folks and some Discordians on the other side of the country, they maybe never met face to face. Maybe talked on the phone. Uh, some of the people that were in the Discordian society in other parts of the country. Maybe uh, they didn't really know their uh, who the, who they really were, and they were doing uh, uh, work on behalf of the Discordian Society, but it had nothing to do with what anybody else was doing. And Greg Hill always promoted the theme that uh, we Discordians must uh, stick apart, so there was an autonomy to the actions of what all the Discordians were uh, doing. No one really knew at any one time what uh, some of the activities the other ones might be involved with. Hmm. Yeah, it's really uh, it's it's really crazy. It's it's uh, 
I don't even know. It's it's really one of a kind. That's what I really like about this whole mm-hmm. thing. It's it's confusing. It's really creative in a lot of ways. It's amazingly creative. And and uh, but as I said earlier, these guys are just having fun in a lot of ways. So it's it's uh, yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, well, let me see. Go ahead. Oh, I was like going to say, say yeah, if you haven't been exposed to this stuff, <laughs> I think a lot of people will pick it up and will go, this is uh, pretty cool, but it's kind of, might be a bit confusing. You know, it'd be helpful to, uh, I saw somebody post this to read the prankster and the conspiracy before getting into uh, this material mm. or perhaps be yeah. aware of the Illuminatus uh, trilogy because... Uh, yeah, it's kind of a lot of crazy, oddball, uh, cool stuff if you don't have it in context. It's, and, you know, we've done that with the uh, the Historia Discordia website, uh, too, to put uh, more background and things that uh, weren't going to make it in the book just because of uh, space limitations. So there's a lot of material at the uh, website, I think, uh, equally yeah. as cool as the book that, We'll continue posting stuff up there because uh, I just, you know, there's a wealth of material here, and I, I see the uh, website, uh, you know, continuing continuing to uh, add uh, fresh content for quite a while. Now, is who I guess uh, are any of these folks who were part of the whole scene? Uh, I know I know most of the principal players have passed away, but. Are there any sort of peripheral characters who are still, uh, you know, up and kicking and, and talking about this at all? Or some, or, or I, I imagine some have grown up and moved on with their lives and don't really <laughs> deal in it anymore, or you know. Yeah. Well, so what's what's the status of the remaining original Discordians? Is probably the best way to put it. Bob Newport, the guy who turned me on to stuff, and he has uh, he's also a contributor to the Principia Discordia. He's still around. I mean, they did a lot of this stuff years and years ago. <laughs> so I yeah. sent him a cu- copy of the book, and he was uh, pleased, and he was like, oh, God, this brings back some memory. You know, uh, I know a heck of a lot more of it now than they do because it was so long ago, <laughs> Yeah, you know. Uh, but it, was, it, it still has a fond place in their uh, heart. Uh, Louise Lacey, I mean, she was involved in it, and I... Uh, got her a copy of the book as well. She's, uh, you know, she's contributed stuff, letters to the uh, archives, so they're still around and uh, very uh, colorful people, have led fascinating uh, lives. Uh, there's some other, probably less uh, or more minor uh, characters, but there's you know, there's yeah. the Discordians still around. The, the major players, yes, have all. Uh, Passed on, Greg Hill, Kerry Thornley, Camden Benares, Robert Anton Wilson, Robert Shea. Uh, they've all uh, shed the mortal yeah. coil. Is Kerry Thornley still alive? I don't know. You might have just said him or not. I, 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 my, no. my brain flashed out. Is he still alive or not? No, he died in 98. Oh, Okay. Because yeah. in the book it didn't list that he died. So unless I missed that one, I was reading it. So maybe I did. Um, what was I going yeah, to ask in, you there? In, in fact, in the uh, book, in the last couple of pages, I post the uh, obituaries for both Hill and Oh, Hill. okay. I think I didn't get that far. I got tied up with something, so I didn't really, uh, I missed that. 
thousand apologies, oh, sir. You had better things to do. Okay. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I feel Good like day, I'm walking sir. all over you. Now. I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm stepping on you here. So I apologize. I feel like uh, I'm cutting in too much. But uh, I'll, I'll try and I'll try and ride the horse better. But um, so all these folks are gone. What? How did it? I guess did it kind of fizzle out? Like, because you know they're mailing this stuff around the country to each other. They're having a good time. Clearly, at some point, it, it, it the, you know, the party ended or something. Like, so how did it sort of uh, fizzle out? Well, Greg Hill, he was a pretty genius guy, but he also had a uh, he's more of an introverted character. Formerly was this crazy extrovert, but these guys were friends. But um, Greg Hill had also had a side to his personality where he'd go into deep depressions and all this. So I was talking about that period when they were out there at, uh, on the Russian River, and they were doing all this cool stuff out there. They started this movie theater that got the, all the locals involved. So it was basically a community project. They started uh, kind of a community center. They'd have uh, music on the weekends where they'd feed the homeless. So they were involved in all that kind of stuff too. But uh, And the Discordium stuff was going on. But sometime around 73 during that period, uh, Greg Hill's wife left him. He went into a major funk, and uh, that whole scene fell apart there. And uh, he moved to New York to become like a bank clerk of all things. And so... <laughs> Things kind of fizzled. He tried to get it going again with some uh, doing stuff by the mill, but he's uh, affected by uh, alcoholism, you know, and these type of uh, things. So kind of went into a uh, a bit of a funk there for a period of years. Uh, Oddly enough, he ended up, uh, came back uh, to the West Coast around 77 or so. I think that's when he started working for Bank of America, (laughs) of all people, and he wrote uh, the initial computer uh, programming software for uh, Bank of America. Everything kind of (laughs) led to ATMs and all of this stuff. So he he was also a techie nerd guy and also came up with uh, what I believe was the uh, first... uh, computer solitaire game and so yeah. uh he had he had a big hand of uh people screwing off at work you know for <laughs> many years so forever goddess, goddess heiress would be pleased but yeah so the uh right as illuminatus was kind of uh taking off uh i think greg helped promote it during that period you know and got kind of active again but you know, as you got into the late uh, 70s or 80s, it kind of fizzled out. The Greg saved all. Greg Hill saved all his letters. So there's communications with different Discordians uh, into the uh, early to mid 80s. Uh, people who had found out about him and his address, and they would send. <laughs> you know, they'd wanted wanted to get Pope cards and a copy of the Principia Discordia, so they would. Uh, Mel him so a little bit of that was going on, but by the uh, mid '80s, I think he had lost uh, uh, interest in it and it had kind of fizzled out. But that didn't stop uh, Discordianism from continuing to uh, evolve. And you know, if you look on the internet, uh, 
now that you can find uh, all kinds of Discordian groups and different Discordians around the world. I've been working with a uh, guy who also contributes to our Historia Discordia website named uh, Brenton Clutterbuck. That's his real name, and uh, he's an Australian lad. He's been traveling the world interviewing Discordians for this book uh, he's writing called Chasing Eris. And so uh, for some strange reason, this uh, movement has continued to uh, grow throughout the years, which doesn't mean if you're a Discordian that you like any of the other Discordians or vice versa. There's no... uh, the interpretation of what uh, Discordian Discordianism is and what each individual Discordian, how they identify themselves, is can change all across the board. So it's kind of this loose-knit, autonomous uh, religion. Yeah. It's kind of like a in-joke. If, if you know what's going on, then uh, you're hip to it. If you don't, you're like, yeah. what, you know, he's kind of like <laughs> thumbing your nose at the squares. Um, mm-hmm. Hillbilly wants to know, this is a good question, actually. Uh, I have an answer or a response to it, too, but I'm interested in your take on it. Uh, with the alphabet agency's ability to monitor everyone's every move, communication, thought, do, does Adam think it, that it might put a damper on such endeavors as Discordia? I guess he means in modern times. Um, yeah, presumably. Oh, well, maybe it has. Uh, <laughs> now, well, this uh, as far as addressing that, uh, people involved in Discordianism uh, these days, uh, maybe that is happening. You know, on Facebook, you have uh, different groups. And I think, you know, obviously there's a certain amount of uh, meddling that uh, goes on with uh, people joining uh Facebook groups and trying to undermine them and, uh, hmm. and yeah. per- perhaps with political groups or whatever. So obviously that goes on. Trolls. Trolls. Well, you got to, yeah, it's t- totally with any Discordian uh, group, you have all that craziness going on there. So it's become, if, you, if you're interested in Discordianism and you go to a uh, internet forum or uh Facebook uh, page, uh, within a couple minutes, <laughs> you might become quickly uh, discouraged and think these are all a bunch of juvenile uh, jack-offs, and a lot of them are. <laughs> so maybe there's met- meddling that goes on that way. Um, as far as uh, uh, alphabet soups or whatever, trying to undermine the uh, Discordian society... Uh, I don't maybe that's happened. Uh, Thornley, you know, uh, Garrison, <laughs> they were suspecting that the uh, Discordian Society was a CIA front, which all the Discordians found hilarious at the uh, time. Then in the mid-70s, uh, Thornley got a bit uh, paranoid and started thinking, well, maybe Garrison was on a, the right track about a lot of this stuff. And uh, this was a bad period for Thornley. He started suspecting that a lot of his friends were in on some type of conspiracy. He suspected for a while that Robert Anton Wilson was like a CIA uh, mind control handler or something of him. And, oh, God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so Jesus. Thornley went through it. Yeah. 
Thornley went through a pretty uh, heavy uh, period there, and Wilson had been a defender during the garrison investigation of uh, Terry Thornley. He was one of the few people who stood by him because it was uh, trendy then to jump on. Uh, Garrison was popular with the left side of the political spectrum, and a lot of the uh, magazines and stuff Wilson was writing for was on the uh, more liberal side of the thing. So he he didn't... uh, uh, he was one of the few that uh, supported Thornley because uh, people who bought into what Garrison was saying uh, saw Thornley as some uh, right-wing CIA type of uh, guy. So, uh, you know, Wilson defended Thornley earlier than, you know, in later years it was like, you know, Thornley's uh, suspecting that Wilson was uh, his uh, mind control handler and thought, Wilson showed up in Atlanta in the mid-70s uh, with Timothy Leary, and I have these uh, letters, and it's pretty evident that uh, Thornley went through a period of uh, when he was uh, par- of having paranoid uh, delusions, and this is experiencing you know, schizophrenia to a certain degree, and this has been confirmed yeah. with a lot of people, including Robert Newport, their good friend who's a psychiatrist for many years. Uh, you know, Thornley, uh, it was really a period of two or three years when he really went into a deep funk, and I think he came out of that, and uh, Pierre's, uh, uh at least from some sources, that he got on meds, and you look at interviews, I posted it, other interviews with him. He looks like uh, ones we posted recently from the early 90s. He looks perfectly sane, rational, and very uh, fascinating, uh, interesting uh, fella. Yeah. So I don't don't think I answered, hopefully I answered Hillbilly's question. I think you did. I think you did. I have a response in a way. Maybe you can jump on that if you want. Um, it, it, It seems he's asking sort of if the if government if the government surveillance uh, would dissuade endeavors such as Discordia, uh, I think if anything it should it should it should encourage the whole idea in a sense. Discordia, is, the whole idea is to cause chaos. There should be more people creating these crazy religions, keep these oh. alphabet agencies on their toes and confused all the time. Where it's like <laughs> you know we need to be, we need more oh. the tactics of of the Discordians. So he's maybe uh, thinking is, or asking would uh, people are less likely to do this uh, type of stuff because they think they'd uh, become more visible to <laughs> the government yeah. and uh, yeah. Uh, perhaps, well, perhaps. I, uh, I mean, uh, go ahead. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say. Um, uh, yeah, they're just to cause trouble. Just to cause trouble, they would they would uh, do. That. Oh, I would be afraid to mail a letter though like that nowadays. I feel like mm-hmm. I feel like you're probably violating some kind of law just, oh. to, just to mail a prank letter to someone. I'd be scared. Well, you know, you know what? Yeah, certain things happened after nine uh, eleven. Yeah. And uh, and so if uh, yeah, they, they all had these uh, crazy Discordian names. Uh, Wilson was, uh, he used a lot of different handles like uh, Mordecai the Foul and, you know, Malaclips the uh, <laughs> Younger, and there was one, one of them was named Fang the Unwashed. 
Omar Khayyam, Ravenhurst, they all had their Discordian handles. Nowadays, if you send a letter to somebody, and, you know, before 9-11, you could send a letter to Malaclips the Younger, and it would get to uh, Great Hill just because it was at that P.O. box. I ran into this just the other day. I sent uh, somebody a copy, and I used their conspiracy name, and it got sent back, and he went to the post office, and, yeah, that's kind of what uh, – one of the things that's uh, come ne- come down in this in this uh, these latter days, if you're using an alias of that uh, uh, nature, that would bring you to the attention of the powers that be, you know, just because yeah. of all the uh, uh, terrorist terrorist uh, fears that are going around these days. Yeah, yeah. They just don't want anyone having any fun. But I'd be scared to mail it. Mail a crazy letter, you know, because someone would be like, "What you doing?" Call the FBI on me because they sent them a letter from a fucking, you know, Dingleberry oh, the Third. It's like, thanks, dude. Sending to different organs. A lot of them were so tongue in cheek and so crazy. It's like, but yeah, I could see where, yeah, they call in the authorities. It reminds me of, uh, like, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Mosley and Great Barker, when they came up with the straight letter that they sent to uh, Georgia Dansky, Barker was, uh, you know, to uh, he was probably uh, the greatest uh, Discordian in the uh, history of ufology because he was playing uh, these type of pranks all the time, uh, all yeah. kinds of stuff from prank phone calls. Uh, I've looked into Barker quite a bit too, and he was, I think. Uh, it's pretty evident now that some of the creepy phone calls that John Kill was getting during the Mothman thing was a great barker <laughs> talking what? through some de- yeah oh yeah talking through some mechanical device. And, How do you uh, come to that conclusion? I'll send you one article I've written. It uh, one of the sources was Alan Greenfield in an interview I did with him and. Uh, uh, Barker made a bunch of, uh, that was typical Barker stuff. He made prank uh, phone calls to different people in the UFO scene. He made, and he put out uh, these uh, publications. Uh, one of his claims, he came up with the whole doppelganger thing in different books like the, uh, uh, let's see, I forget the title. He, he did a Men in Black uh, book. They knew too much about flying saucers, whatever. He started these legends where he was seeing uh, Jim Mosley doppelgangers and other doppelgangers. He was making (laughs) all this stuff up to uh, sell books and put the mythos out there. For instance, he he was an early member of uh, Albert Bender's uh, UFO group. Bender was the guy who claimed that uh, that this was like in the early uh, 50s that the three men in black showed up and silenced him yeah. and that they were government agents or uh, something. Re- reading different books and Mosley's account, uh, the reason uh, he was, uh, and uh, what's his name, Bender claimed he was uh, forced out of uh, ufology because of this, but it was basically just a way that, uh, to get out of ufology, but... Uh, so uh, Barker, you know, he was part of Bender's organization, and he uh, printed 
Bender's book, and yet uh, he came out, uh, Barker did, with his own uh, book on the whole Bender affair and the men in black. Uh, when Bender first shared the story, the men in black were just presented to government agents, but when Barker got a hold of it, and I believe it was in They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers or whatever the title was, the men in black had changed now, and he attributed... Uh, you know, air of mystery, that they talked in strange patterns. They had a strange uh, skin pallor. They uh, showed up in these uh, vintage uh, mint cars that were like 20 years old and that they were yeah. possibly, the, the hints he gave that they were maybe some type of alien hybrids or whatever. And so Barker was involved in all these type of uh, type of scams. Um, Mosley writes about it in uh, his book, and one of the things, yeah, was writing these letters, and uh, they wrote out the number because, <laughs> yeah, this is straight out of uh, Discordianism. As the legend goes, uh, one of uh, Barker's uh, saucer pals, some young man, had a uh, father who worked in the State Department, and this kid got a whole a bunch of uh, State Department stationery. <laughs> and sent it to uh, Barker. Every uh, couple times a year, Mosley would go, and they'd get together in West Virginia, and they'd start drinking <laughs> and make phone calls. Or this one time was like, oh, look at this stationery. What could we do with this? And, of course, that's when they uh, composed uh, the straight letter to Adamski. He got a hold of it and basically said, the State Department thanks you for your efforts Mr. Adamski, and we do confirm that you have seen UFOs, but we can't publicly say it and all this stuff. And Adamski got it. It was like he was parading the thing all over the place. And uh, the feds got wind of this, and, you know, they questioned about it. What, where did this came from? They, I think uh, the FBI, they questioned uh, both Mosley and Barker, but they were ne never able to uh, pin it on him totally. Uh, Barker got, oh, God. Shook up. Barker got shook up and he busted up <laughs> the typewriter and he <laughs> uh, buried it in Cimenity, a construction site there in uh, West Virginia. <laughs> and so Barker had his hands in all kinds of uh, stuff. And, uh, yeah, uh, at least that's... Uh, Interesting. I, so he I, may have... I, yeah, he may have he may have played a hand in uh in the whole in the in, in the whole Mothman mythos. That's amazing. Oh yeah, totally. And he he was there, right? Uh, he was involved in all this early stuff with the. He lived in West Virginia, so the whole Flatwood monster uh, story. He was one of the first quote unquote reporters on scene, so he reported that. He went and uh, he wrote a book called The uh, Silver Bridge which is his account of the whole uh, Mothman thing, because uh, he was there at the same time John Keel and some other people showed up in Point uh, Pleasant. So uh, Barker put his own spin on it, uh, too, and he usually uh, added a lot of colorful embellishments, uh, to say the least, to his stories. And so, yeah, a lot of people credit him with really the... Uh, having a big hand in the creation of the mythos of the men in black. Mm. Did he know Keel, or was he like, or, or did or they, yeah. he, how much did he even know? 
they were friends. They okay, knew each so other. Has... In the... Oh God! And do you think Hill knew that he was pranking him, or or do you think that, or, or do you think they had both had a right laugh about it afterwards, and and it was just in, into the mythos, or do you think uh, he never really knew? I think, uh, no, Keel wasn't in on it, but uh, as he knew more, uh, found out more about uh, some of the shenanigans uh, Barker and uh, Mosley were involved in, he wasn't too fond of them, especially Mosley. <laughs> in uh, yeah. later years, he called Jim Mosley a uh, boil on the ass of ufology. Oh, but wow. They were, yeah, they were, you know, they knew each other. Uh, they were friends, and they did conventions together. Every Mosley was the main one in the '60s and early '70s, putting on, you know, the UFO uh, conventions. But I, I'm sure uh, somewhere along the line, uh, Kill, uh, you know, suspected yeah. uh, Barker maybe had a hand in that uh, stuff. But did, well, what, he, talking course, about he probably. He, he probably didn't want to admit, though, that he'd been had. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, you're talking about strange characters. Uh, i got to ask you to revisit something I'm sure we talked about on the show before, uh, but I, I need a refresher on it, uh, because every Earth Day comes around, and I try to tell the story of Ira Einhorn, and I always you know, feel like I leave out the details and just say, he murdered his wife or something, <laughs> so you should look it up to people, so... Tell tell the story of Ira Einhorn and how you guys crossed paths uh, later on in the uh, you know later on in time. But you know tell tell the story in general because it's absolutely amazing and I want to be able to uh, recreate it someday uh, <laughs> to impress people myself. So let's hear about yeah my that. home my homeboy. Um, so <clears throat> Ira Einhorn was involved in the '60s uh, counterculture, kind of you know involved in anti-war stuff and the yippies. He lived in Philadelphia, so there's a book about him called The Unicorn Secret. If people want to find out more, they can read it. But he, he knew those people, the uh, Abby Hoffmans and the Jerry Rubens, ran in those uh, circles. And in 1970, he was uh, they had the first Earth Day, so he was one of the uh, founders, the people who launched Earth Day. That was 19. 70, and they had it, I guess, different parts of the country, so he kind of organized the uh, Philadelphia Earth Day. He was also involved in a lot of paranormal shit. Uh, yeah. He was involved with Andrea Puharic and Uri Geller uh, during a period in the early 70s when they made contacts, supposedly, with extraterrestrials. Uh, Hugh Harick, the famous parapsychologist dude, he had a farm or ranch or whatever he calls it out in Austin, New York. Is that how you say that? And uh, he was carrying on different experiments and stuff there with Yuri Geller. And Ira Einhorn was also part of that uh, scene. And uh, he witnessed a UFO or two upon occasion. Apparently, they were having where they were out at the uh, Puharic's farm, there's a lot of weird stuff going on. So it's like supposedly like one of those places that attracted strange uh, energies and stuff. Puharic yeah, like uh, what's that place? Uh, that place, like that, like that ranch out there in uh, 
in Nevada. Yeah, Skinwalker, Skinwalker, Skinwalker yeah. Ranch. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so okay, so he so he's mixed up in all this paranormal stuff. And uh, that, that's pretty interesting there too, because he had an influence. I was just reading uh, yesterday. Uh, doing some research on UFOs and whatnot, and there's a book that came out on uh, Yuri Geller and Andrea Puharic called UFOs, and I forget what the title was, but it talks about this whole period. And in the introduction, Puharic thanks his friend Ira Einhorn, who made this project possible. <laughs> and uh, according to Einhorn, I interviewed him later, and he said he also helped edit and publish... Uh, Messengers of Deception by Jacques Vallée. Oh, wow, really? about that. So he was involved in that scene, but also in the uh, early 70s, he was into uh, spreading the word about suppressed technologies, Tesla technologies, cutting-edge uh, stuff, and he got funded by uh, Bell Telephone, uh, some of the family who owns it or something. They became patrons of Einhorn to put this material out, and Einhorn put this network together. And I think they used some early forms of telephone, Internet stuff, uh, really cutting-edge uh, stuff. So he was involved in all this, and they were, you know, these people were funding, basically uh, that's how he made a living doing all this uh, Stuff. So he's involved in all of this paranormal, Tesla technologies, anti-war dude, whatever, peace and love and all that. Then in uh, the late 70s there, I forget the exact date, uh, the body of his girlfriend was found in a steamer trunk uh, all hacked up from an axe in his apartment there in uh, Philadelphia. So, yeah, he was... Uh, picked up for that, and uh, <laughs> there was a trial, and his attorney was none other than Arlen Specter, you know, he is. Hmm. Yeah. It says the he fled the country, though. Well, yeah, we're getting the guy to that. Oh, okay, all right, I'm sorry. The magic bullet theory guy. Yeah. Oh, wait, Arlen. That was, yeah. that was his attorney. There's all these odd connections. Um and so, anyway, Einhorn somehow, he got Bill and uh, skipped the country. Okay. And uh, he wasn't seen for many years. And if you read this book, The uh, Unicorn Secret, uh, when they published it, and it came out in the mid to late 80s, and at that time, Einhorn was still on the lam. And actually, there were stories. People had, had seen him in... Uh, like in uh, Great Britain or Ireland, and he had a different name by then. His appearance had changed quite a bit, and they were uh, some Interpol or somebody was uh, got close to uh, capturing him, but when they showed up to where he was living, he was gone. And so <laughs> that was in the 80s, and it wasn't until in the 90s that he showed up again. And he was in uh, France, and uh, at that point, his extradition status wasn't uh, clear, so at that point, the U.S. couldn't uh, bring him back for a trial. I guess they never finished the, his uh, first trial. They'd just gone in for whatever preliminary stuff. So he was over there in France for a uh, 
few years living at this, you know, in the French countryside, <laughs> this nice house with the, he had his wife there, blonde-haired lady, basically r- rubbing it in the uh, face of the uh, government here that wanted to get his extradited back here to try him for the murder of his girlfriend, Halby hmm. uh, Maddox. And so around that time, 98 or so, I was uh, somebody gave me Ira Einhorn's email address. <laughs> and so I thought... Uh, I'm interested. This is an interesting character. I want to try to set up an interview. And I did interview him for the Excluded Middle magazine. Yeah, the Excluded Middle anthology. Yeah, it's excellent. And uh, uh, mine, the one I did was the first interview he did. After that, they came out with a piece in Vanity Fair. Yeah. And there was some weird weirdness going on when I was interviewing him. Uh, I felt that. I can't give you all the details, but my email was being monitored. I was getting hints. Uh, somebody uh, sent back one of the emails I had sent him from another address that had been kind of truncated and uh, led me to suspect that somebody was uh, monitoring our emails and letting me know. <laughs> wasn't oh boy. doing anything illegal necessary, but uh, one of and so Einhorn's argument was that this, somehow the CIA was involved in, the, uh, in Holly Maddox's murder to set him up. He uh, and other people suggested, well, maybe Einhorn was uh, some type of MK Ultra patsy who was mind controlled, since he doesn't can't remember exactly what went down. Uh, Einhorn was connected with uh, different. Uh, people who have kind of spooky uh, legends yeah. about themselves, like Kit Green, who people oh, yeah. said was modeled after, uh, or that the character on X-Files uh, was modeled after. And so there's all that stuff going on. And uh, anyway, he finally did get extradited back to the States. It kind of surprised him. He thought he was safe over there later in the 90s or 2000s, and uh, then uh, he was tried and convicted for Holly Maddox's murder, and he's in prison here in the U.S. Um, Greg Hill, actually, uh, Greg Hill, Greg uh, Bishop interviewed him on Radio Mysterioso when he was still over in France. Oh, nice. And those those interviews are still up somewhere, I think, on the excluded middle website, but uh, Einhorn always danced around the, uh, he'd he'd never (laughs) answer any of the questions, pertinent questions uh, regarding the uh, case, which is kind of curious. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah. (laughs) So, and like, I don't remember uh, any any question. (laughs) Oh, well, he's kind of a uh, clever guy, too, so he'd turn it around or dance around stuff, and it was pretty obvious <laughs> when Greg uh, interviewed him. Greg was getting frustrated, and uh, he doesn't really air his frustration. We talked about it later and here <laughs> different parts of the interview where Greg kind of picked up the phone and threw it across the room because he was getting so uh, <laughs> pissed <laughs> off. Einhorn wouldn't answer any pertinent questions. And he never really did for me either when I interviewed him, you know. So yeah, he he wanted to 
take the conversation more into all the wonderful things he was doing to uh, save the Earth. What could cause that? Clearly aliens can cause that. As happened in Roswell, New Mexico, as happens in the television show I like called The Event, you have to face facts that aliens are all around us and they have finally gotten to the NHL. You're listening to the Nall of America Audio. Creepy. That's what this is. You pointed out that I've spent a lot of time in Dallas, 20 years, working just a few blocks away from the grassy knoll, oh, sure. the book depository. So you're a conspiracist. And the conspiracy museum, which, right. oddly enough, has been closed down now. Conspiracy could be. Something odd is going on here. It sounds like one of, one of those stories he was missing for a long time. It's uh, You rarely ever hear sort of breaks in those types of cases and stuff, so it's kind mm-hmm. of neat that, like... You know, that's like one of those type of unsolved mysteries type of episodes that you you'd see, and uh, and then he resurfaced. So pretty neat stuff. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. Think, uh, excuse me. I think it was on one of those uh, type of television episodes that helped finally uh, track him down. But one of the things he had going for him with was he was the darling of uh, people with money. You know, <laughs> yeah. that uh, had. Uh, basically supported him over, uh, you know, when he was in the States here and when he went on the lam, it uh, seems seemed pretty evident that he had, still had people helping him. Oh, who had, sure. Who had money, you know. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. I wonder why. Well, I guess maybe you say he's clever. He's probably, probably has some charismaticness about him that lended himself mm-hmm. to all these adventures anyway, so it would make sense. How long was he... How long was he in, like, because you got a hold of him, obviously they knew where he was and stuff. How long was he just kind of chilling out, waiting to waiting to avoid going back to America, but, but known to the authorities? Hmm. I can't tell you exactly, he, but he reemerged around the uh, time I was talking to him, and that might have been 97, 98. Uh, you kind of have to actually get on the web to find the exact uh, dates of all that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. And he, it's weird stuff. No, he had, go ahead. He had, excuse me, he hadn't really uh, came out, at, I think, when I first started <laughs> interviewing him because somebody, the guy who gave me his email address was a book dealer, and so I think he was selling Einhorn books or something, and he had... Uh, not sure. Uh, I guess he figured I'd be interested <laughs> in Einhorn since I wrote about Manson or whatever. So that's how I got the email address. But yeah, during that time, he wasn't really. Uh, a lot of people didn't know about uh, what was going on uh, with him in France. After I interviewed him, like I said, they came out. Uh, Vanity Fair came out with this big article on him. And so that was uh, the late 90s, and I think probably a couple of years uh, afterward, in the early 2000s, they uh, got him extradited. Is he still alive? Uh, I believe so, yeah. You should get in touch with him. Reconnect. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> Greg, Greg, <laughs> is actually, Greg uh, sent him a few books in the prison. Well, he'd be an interesting dude. Uh, it'd be an interesting little uh, biography or something, you know. To maybe now that he's in jail, he'll open up more. He maybe he's given up on on <laughs> covering his ass at this point. I doubt he's like uh, appealing this decision or anything. But who knows? Be interesting to he's, see he's, uh, what he's, he's got going on now. 
he's awfully fond of himself. Ah, <laughs> oh, he's know, one of those guys. I don't know. I don't know how much I could take of uh, telling his story because I, yeah, I doubt if I'd get the real story. It would be a bunch of uh, blah blah blah. I think read, you know, that uh, book, The Unicorn's Secret, is pretty good. And, well, it's actually fascinating reading. It's probably been updated since I've read it, so there's probably the best account. I mean, there's other stories. His days with uh, Hugh Harick and Geller and all those people, but I'm sure they they're all steering clear of uh, Einhorn these days. Talking about well, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just put the link up for folks. Uh, Unicorn Secret. I don't know if they did an updated version or not. I can't tell uh, from the Amazon link, so it would be interesting to see uh, what he's got going on now. Now, I noticed on the Historia Discordia website that it's, it also featured a lot of uh, letters to the editor, I believe. At least I, at least the last time I checked in, I was reading some letters to the editor type stuff. Uh uh, but there wasn't much of that in the book, so I guess tell me a little bit about that. Was that something else they did, just write, write these sort of uh, crazy letters to the editor and hope they get printed? Uh, stuff you saw on Historia Discordia website? I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about on the Historia Discordia site, but we... Yeah, I'd have to dig it I'd have to dig it up, yeah. I'd have to dig it up, there, so... Uh, there, there's there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of stuff on there. There's like, uh, you might be thinking there... Uh, and some some of it's uh, letters from Robert Anton Wilson, where uh, that might be some of the stuff. There was one. I think it uh, is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One in there where somebody was claiming that he was uh, bad mouthing transsexuals and minorities, and all that. So it's kind of a back and forth with this uh, person. Uh, and so yeah, it was from the. Uh, yeah, that's the page. one. I, yeah, that's the one I saw. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, that's the one I saw. It was like a long, elaborate letter. It was. It was just like this crazy exchange of uh, of ideas. It was. It was like, what is, what is, what's going on with this thing? This is. That's when I really got turned on to the whole site. I was like, what? <laughs> this is like a glimpse into another world. Yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, it's cool. And some of this stuff, you know, nobody's. This was in the archives, so it's uh, something that. Uh, Great Hill would save the letters from all these uh, people, Thornley, Wilson, Robert Shea. He would save their letters, and all the letters he would send out, too, he he would, uh, I think he'd keep the original and send them a copy. So uh, in the archives, you have a lot of the, uh, the letters to and from people, so you can understand what the conversations uh, yeah. are going on. It's, so there's, and so we've... Uh, Slowly publishing on the website some of those uh, materials. It's just a uh, yeah. There's a lot of stuff there, and people yeah. are fascinated. There's a large community of Robert Anton Wilson fans out there, and anytime there's new Wilson material, even if it's a letter of some sort or whatnot, that you know, there's a certain degree of interest, obviously, because he has uh, such a large fan base. Mm, yeah, this Jim Jim Lydica in the chat room mentions that, actually. He says uh, he liked that you linked to uh, Robert Anton Wilson's article about Crowley and the Realist. Mm -hmm. Does that ring a bell? Oh, yeah, that's been a more recent one. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, we can go down that rabbit hole a little bit, uh, if you'd like. Uh, just because it's so fascinating, uh, yeah. 
it kind of goes to show uh, just how connected all this stuff is, how connected all these people yeah. are and everything. It's, it's amazing. They can, they can find the uh, post on Story of the Scorty is probably uh, half a dozen or a dozen posts ago, so you've got to go in the past a little bit. But uh, Yeah, just search for crop. So I, yeah, I got turned on to uh, oh, Wilson talking. Uh, what Okay, what I post there is, uh, first thing, it's a YouTube video that's an interview with Wilson from the early 90s. And he was the first person I heard uh, bring up uh, the uh, uh, the Lawn portrait and the uh, uh, compared that to the Alien Gray on uh, Whitley Strieber's Communion. And so Wilson was one of the first uh, people to make that uh, comparison, as I recall. And so he, he became a student of uh, Crowley, became really interested in that, and Crowley and his works, and uh, this was in the early 70s, and Wilson was also dabbling in psychedelics and <laughs> trying to uh, perform in these magic, uh, different magic rituals, and so on July 23rd, 1973, he was coming off an acid trip from the day before, and he uh, uh, started this uh, ritual, this magic ritual and it's a kind of a Crowleyan and Nokian ritual called the Conversation of My Holy Guardian Angel. And uh, it was at that time that he uh, established, he thought, <laughs> uh, communication with the star system Sirius. And, uh, <laughs> and so that was, as the time progressed, uh, Wilson thought, well, maybe it wasn't uh, actual extraterrestrials I communicated with. Uh, Wilson was friends with Jacques Vallée, and so he got exposed to maybe it was some type of uh, psychic phenomena, or maybe later he was just his left brain talking to his right brain. But uh, right after that happened, on July 23rd, he started researching Sirius more because he uh, hadn't, you know, wasn't real familiar with legends and stuff, and he discovered that July 23rd was the beginning of the dog days of Sirius. And uh, he also discovered later that uh, Philip K. Dick and a lady named Doris Lessing also had experiences of some sort with the star system Sirius during the same period he did. So there was all these odd uh, synchronicities that uh, came together. And so um, uh, Wilson got into uh, uh, Crowley, became interested in his. There's a lot of uh, coded messages and things in uh, Crowley's work that I could read every one of his book and I wouldn't pick up on any of them. But... Mm -hmm. uh, Robert Anton Wilson had a mind that he's very good at decoding different word clues and hints and stuff, so he really got into that. And he also appreciated that uh, Crowley uh, approached magic ritual and a scientific uh, method and was a master of yoga. So Wilson got into all of this stuff. And he wrote about Crowley very early in the uh, early 70s and one article was in uh, what we reproduced there, at least a picture of it in uh, Paul Krasner's The Realist, and uh, I think it was a couple uh, in a couple issues where uh, it was a long article about uh, 
Aleister Crowley and uh, Wilson was really one of the first uh, ones not to write from the point of view that, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, all the sensationalism. He tried to take that out of it and kind of a, examine uh, Crowley in a new light, or in a, at least hmm. from a different perspective. Yeah. And, now, you, and you so got a new I, book. Oh, go ahead. You know what I noticed? Let me just stop you here because I, I, it's driving me crazy. But I think uh, I think because you're on Skype and I'm on a regular thing, where we have a delay. Because every time we talk, it seems like we we just cut into each other. So uh, I apologize to folks, but I've, I'm definitely of the opinion that that's what's going on here. So <laughs> go ahead. Because every time I interject, it seems like I catch you a couple seconds after I interject. It, 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 it's uh, it's uh, it's stilting. So I apologize. But uh, go ahead, my friend. Oh, no problem. Maybe our biorhythms are off or something, too. But uh, oh, I was just going to say in that post as well, uh, he's also uh, got interested in Jack Parsons as well. So that's it, in that uh, post, uh, the guy in the chat room is talking about it. Uh, there's some different videos of Robin and Tom Wilson first talking about Aleister Crowley. Pretty fascinating. Gets into all those connections with Lom and uh, how uh, this being Lom that uh, Crowley channeled might have been uh, an alien gray, and also uh, some other videos of Raw Robert Anton Wilson talking about Jack Parsons, who was a disciple of uh, Crowley, and also had some strange uh, interactions with otherworldly beings uh, through magic through, you know, the practice of magic uh, ritual in 1946 when he was conducting these rituals with none other than L. Ron Hubbard, the future founder of uh, Scientology. And so the whole legend, just to wrap this up, between uh, the whole legend around all of this stuff is that uh, Crowley, using magic rituals, and he dabbled in hallucinogens and whatnot, was able to open some stargate or doorway in the uh, around 1910-1920, and he taught other people to do this through his rituals, and that's supposedly what uh, Parsons and Hubbard did in 1946 out in the uh, uh, Mojave Desert. They were doing a lot of this stuff, and some reports say they contacted Venusians, or it's not really clear <laughs> what they contacted, but... Uh, mm. Afterwards, uh, you know, that was 1946 and 47, the wave, the, you know, uh, modern era of UFOs began with uh, the sightings of Kenneth Arnold and Maury Island and Roswell. And so some suggest that uh, basically Parsons and Hubbard opened a doorway for the extraterrestrial phenomena. What one writer, uh, one observer wrote, who's into all this stuff, was uh, that uh, uh, basically uh, Parsons and Hubbard weren't as adept as Aleister Crowley of opening and closing these portals, that they opened up uh, this portal, but they weren't uh, able to successfully close it, which uh, unleashed the modern era of UFOs. Yeah, yeah. That's the theory some people have, that that caused the whole mess in the first place. So it's kind of it's, like I said earlier. It's interesting how all these folks are connected. It's really uh, amazing how how they their paths cross in, in various strange ways. It's it's uh, 
as you said earlier, the synchronicities involved in all this are, are really uh, mind-bending. Indeed. Yeah. Now, I'm looking at the new book here. It's coming out soon, Caught in the Crossfire, Perry Thornley, Oswald, and the Garrison Investigation. I love the cover. It's outstanding. Who, uh, who, who's behind the cover there? Who did that? Ah, interesting. I get all these synchronicities around these book projects. <laughs> I've had a few um, with – I'll talk about Caught in the Crossfire in a second in the cover, but uh, – with uh, working on this, and these are two different publishers, the folks who published the uh, story of Discordia. We were working on the layout and uh, working with this woman who was doing the stuff, and uh, swear to God, at least uh, on several occasions, you know, as you can see from the book, it's uh, there was a lot of effort putting putting it together and there's a lot of pieces, you know, so <laughs> there's a lot of interaction between myself and the publisher with the layout, you know, uh, yeah. moving things around. And and so we'd, uh, the uh, person doing the layout would send me the uh, changes and whatever and a few questions and uh, stuff like that. And we'd have these incidents where I'd reply back and a couple days would pass, you know, <laughs> and I yeah. thought, ooh, I forgot to tell her about this and that, and so I sit down to type it type it out, and before I'm done, you know, I get an email from her asking about that specific question. This happened several times, you know, and so yeah. synchronicities like that. So with this other book, Caught in the Crossfire, it's done by uh, Feral House, great publisher, Adam Parfrey there, yeah. and... Uh, as we were having communications about the uh, book project, I uh, was also uh, started interacting with this guy on uh, Facebook, an artist named Robert Preston. He's really done some uh, cool stuff. He has this whole series of lone nut assassins that he's done. You might be familiar with some of his work and uh, uh, conspiracy-related uh, things. He's a uh, painter-artist in New York. And so somehow we uh, connected, uh, he contacted me about something, and, you know, I enjoyed his work. And so that that was going on there. Then uh, so we were developing this book project, and I told Parfrey at uh, Feral House, so I kind of envisioned the cover being, uh, I had this one uh, photograph of Terry Thornley where he's holding his hand and maybe a picture of uh, Jim Garrison and maybe one of Oswald there. And I was thinking in my mind, uh, Robert Preston would be a good guy to do this uh, uh, cover. But I didn't suggest that to uh, Parfrey, and he got back to me and uh, said, well, uh, have you seen Robert Preston's work? I oh, said, weird. Uh, yeah, I love it. Uh, <laughs> I'd love for him to do the cover, so it happened. Maybe I have some... Uh, Staggering mental powers that uh, hitherto unknown, but uh, hmm. so there's been a lot of synchronicities around all these discording related book projects. So that's yeah, that's how that uh, book cover uh, came about. Now, Historia Discordia, that kind of it could double as a, as a coffee table book in a lot of ways because uh, it's so uh, visually arresting as you dig into it mm -hmm. more and more. Is, is Caught in the Crossfire going to be like that, or is it more of a, uh, you know, a straight, a straight uh, text type book? Uh, 
more straight text except, uh, you know, it'll, it'll have a number of uh, photos in it, and there's some uh, mm, yeah writings that Kerry Thornley did on the uh, JFK assassination, Oswald Garrison that haven't been published before, but uh, yeah, more more like this a uh, regular uh, straight uh, book as opposed to. Uh, Story of Discordia, which is a coffee table book. At some point, it'd be nice to see Historia Discordia uh, completely uh, printed in color. It's in black and white. <laughs> yeah, you know, the expensive proposition to do that. Will there be more coffee table type books from you, or is that kind of like uh, just just a one and done style thing you, you want to do? I think maybe we were talking about the paste-up Discordia and uh, talking mm. to a publisher who is uh, planning to do that. That'll probably be more like, yeah, a coffee table uh, type thing, I think, with that project. So, yeah, the answer to your question is yes. Okay. Uh, I got a couple of questions here from the chat. Uh, we'll, we'll dig these out, and then uh, I have to. I can't let you go till I talk a little bit about the NBA with you. So uh, sit tight. Sure. Have Have you heard or read uh, heard of or read the book Doctor Mary's Monkey? I read that years ago. Yeah. Um, was there more to the question? That was the question. That's one of those questions where you could actually just say yes, and then you're, the department's <laughs> like, ah, I should have asked a follow-up question. I, I suppose he thinks what he – I suppose he wants to know what you thought of it. <laughs> well, there's some intriguing information in there, and it's – yeah, I would recommend reading the uh, book. It's, you know, it's centered – boy, it's been several years. Uh, yeah, I can, I, can, I can help you out a little bit here. It's, a, it's about a, a prodigy – um, researcher, young lady who somehow gets mixed up in um, some kind of error in 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 uh, in study down there in New Orleans that allegedly uh, unleashes cancer on the population, and she's also mixed up in the whole Garrison uh, JFK uh, milieu that explodes down there at the same time. She's she's uh, talk about synchronicity. She's running in a lot of these same circles and it's all mm -hmm. a true story i mean as far as we know it's you know it's not it's not a it's not a what if or historical fiction it's a it's a pretty straight story i've been meaning to get the author of that book on the show for years because the story is absolutely amazing polio yeah edward, yeah edward haslam is his name yeah and uh, david ferry gets wrapped up in the story mm -hmm. <laughs> he was involved in the lab i guess and uh uh, but uh, the uh, young woman's name is uh, Mary uh, Baker, Mary Very, let's see, what the heck's her name? Her last name's Baker. Oh, Judith Yeah, Baker. well, it's definitely yeah, Mary. <laughs> we Mary know Mary was, far, Mary, sure. Mary was the one who died, but Judith Baker's also involved in the uh, story, and she was a lab worker. Hmm. And uh, she, she claims she's written her own book called... Uh, we and me, I think it is, and that during oh, that yeah, period, yeah. yeah, she uh, was Lee Harvey Oswald's lover, and uh, she claims and uh, knew him in New Orleans, and uh, basically says that yeah, Lee was uh, set up. He was a uh, government agent who got led astray, and they basically uh, took him out. If I understand everything she presents and she also claims in her book uh 
me and Lee that she has two incidents in that book where uh, Thornley and Oswald were interacting in New Orleans. She claims to have seen them together. Yeah. Which which Weird. I address in my book, Caught in the Crossfire. <laughs> oh, nice. So they're very good. Wow. Wow. Go rightly. You're a pro at this kind of thing. I'm amazed. You're you're really uh, yeah. Nice plug there. That was good. Uh, the other question in the chat is. Uh, so what did Red Sun Superman again asks uh, so what did Thornley end up thinking about Oswald after he thought he might have been upon himself well I guess um, initially when uh, they met uh, when they met was in uh, at El Toro Marine Base. This was in 1959, and Thornley had just got in the Marines, and Oswald was back from uh, the Far East. He had served at Atsugi Base in Japan as a radar technician, and that's what Thornley ended up going over there and doing. But uh, uh, Oswald got demoted. Because of some incident that happened, there was different rumors. A lot of people now suspect that that was just a covering, that he was an agent. So they sent him back uh, to the uh, States and uh, to portray him as a misfit, you know, for whatever yeah. uh, reason. And that uh, was part of the reason he defected to Russia. But anyway, when Thornley first knew him, he thought he was kind of an interesting character and he was one of the few uh, people that uh, he could have extended conversations with on a lot of different topics. And they did talk about, you know, religion and politics and Marxism and all this. But normally, uh, basically, I think he felt then that uh, Oswald was kind of a fuck-up and that yeah. when he heard about the assassination, uh, he thought, no, I, we couldn't have done it now. He, you know... Get screw up a wet dream, so uh, so initially that's how he felt, and uh, later uh, formally testified for the Warren Commission and started accepting what the media was saying that uh, yeah it must have been Oswald. Of course, you know, like a lot of people, uh, formally trusted the messages that were coming out of the free press, the supposed free press of those days that you could trust uh, what, uh, yeah. you know, the media told us. Uh, then uh, a couple of years afterwards, he uh, started looking into it a little deeper. And that actually, Thornley had the first book published on Oswald in 65 called Oswald, where he basically regurgitated what the popular view of uh, the Warren Commission was and that Oswald was psychologically imbalanced or whatever that led him to assassinate supposedly Kennedy. Then a couple of years later, he gets wind of the Warren Commission. A Warren Commission critic named David Lifton visited him, brought all 26 volumes, and over the course of a night uh, convinced him that there had been a conspiracy. <laughs> and so he, his uh, thinking shifted then as well. And uh, so, I mean, the question is, what did he think of Oswald? So at that point, he's thinking he was innocent, set up. As time evolved... After so there was the whole garrison investigation and all of that uh, going on, and by the time the 70s came around, uh, Thornley began to suspect that 
he was a secondary uh, patsy if the Oswald setup hadn't uh, worked that uh, they, were, they could set Thornley up with because there was all these connections in New Orleans of Thornley having these chance meetings with David Ferry, Guy Bannister, all these people. They're just chance meetings, but uh, years later, Kerry thought about these, and it's what made Garrison suspect. Why did you have interaction with all these people? And Thornley thought, well, it was just chance. He later suspected that it had been arranged for him to meet those people briefly, so later he could be uh, set up. So as we get into the 70s and later on, uh, Thornley thought later that both he and Oswald were patsies, that they were quite possibly part of the MK Ultra program. The, they did a lot of MK Ultra stuff at Atsugi Base, where both Thornley and Oswald were uh, stationed. That's where they were doing that test, testing with Oz, with LSD and all that. And one of the yeah. biggest uh, uh, storage places for LSD was uh, at Atsugi and also in Manila, where both uh, Thornley had been at both of those. So he suspected they'd both been MK Ultra. Uh, there's other evidence in the book to kind of uh, bolster that uh, theory. And as Thornley got more uh, uh, extravagant in his uh, theories over the years, he began uh, one time or another to suspect that he was part of a Nazi genetic breeding experiment uh, with him and Oswald, and they were kind of like uh, uh, cut from the same... Uh, genetic block or something to be groomed to be a uh, assassins hmm. and this is, and that and that the assassination yeah part of it uh, came out of uh, Nazi uh, Germany with project paperclip it gets pretty <laughs> crazy but I think to answer yeah. this was red Superman uh, is ultimately Kerry uh, thought yeah both he and Oswald had been set up and Jesus, he, that's got to give you, yeah. <laughs> he uh, he liked uh, Oswald, basically, uh, but uh, he and Oswald had a little bit of a falling out the last time they saw each other. and uh, but uh, So, yeah, Weird. it's a long, long-winded way of answering the question. But, uh, but Well, you know, you talk about the guy going super paranoid, but it's like if you... I mean, if I was, like, friends with Oswald and all that went down, and, and then I was part of the... I mean, I, the guy has every reason and right to be <laughs> paranoid. Yeah. You know, he, he's right on the on the very fringe of history, and, you know, but for but for the hand of the CIA go him. Things could have been completely different for him. It's uh, crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. Hey, um, uh, And when... Uh, let me see. Yeah, when does... Uh, when does the new book come out? October 14th, it says here. But folks can pre-order if they want, right? Oh, yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, it comes out, out in October, I believe. That you know, uh, that might change. I don't know. It might come out earlier. It all depends on how soon they get it together, you know. Uh, I was going to mention, you know, with the Thornley, that's a good <laughs> observation. If you've gone through all this uh, stuff, I mean, maybe, yeah, you were. <laughs> that would drive you crazy. Push yeah, you over the exactly. edge. One of the things when I uh, was writing the prankster and the conspiracy, he ended up later in uh, Little Five Points, and he was kind of in Atlanta. He's kind of beloved character there, kind of a uh, this uh, 
charismatic, uh, off-the-wall person talking about conspiracies and whatnot. But I heard this from more than one person that they'd uh, be out on the town or something with Thornley uh, hanging out, and uh, he would leave, and some other persons would show up at their table, and uh, the conversation would usually come around to uh, Carrie Thornley even though it wasn't initiated and that there was spooky men seemed to always be near. Different people were sharing these uh, stories like still, even in the uh, 90s, uh, you know, there was uh, people monitoring his activities. So uh, who knows? Yeah, yeah, who knows? All right, uh, Debating whether we should start the uh, basketball talk now or give it a lot of the seven minutes to uh, all this stuff. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep it on topic here and we'll uh, not torture the folks who are listening live. Uh, otherwise, they're all going to bail on us on the live show. <laughs> like we get it. So where can folks get uh, – it seems pretty obvious, but it's sort of the standard question. Where can folks get Historia Discordia, <laughs> the origins of the Discordian Society? Where can they find this book? Do you, do you have a preferred – place for them to get it? You'd rather they just get, go through historydiscordia.com and get it? That way it uh, helps you out more, or, or is there a place to go? Well, maybe it uh, does. I'm not even sure. I didn't set up the Historia Discordia website, so but we do have the links there, so maybe uh, Webmaster gets a little something. But yeah, they could go through Historia Discordia right. website, and that'll tr- get people maybe to go over there and look at the website, or Amazon. All my books are on Amazon, and that's, yeah, that's the preferred easy That's the way everybody gets books now. Yeah. 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 Scary. Scary. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, let me see here. StoryDiscordia.com. It's a fantastic website, folks. i got to put it over. As I said, I was was digging into it and just dive in. You get further and further into it. It's more and more amazing stuff and uh, an amazing glimpse into a whole different world. It's really, uh, it's quaint in a way. With this internet nowadays, it's just, just junk everywhere. You can barely sift through anything. It's, it's nice to see like creative people doing something creative back in a time when you actually had to uh, be creative and put the effort into mail letters and stuff like that. It's pretty amazing stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, it was a different world. I, you know, I first got into the whole zine thing. You still uh, had that in the late 80s, and the people I talked to who were, you know, into the uh, zine movement and contributed and make, made their own zines, it was a uh, big day when you got, you know, to the uh, post office to see what would land there, you know, and <laughs> might come back with three or four different zines you traded with somebody or something you'd be waiting for, some uh, rare, obscure uh, conspiracy document like the Gemstone file or the Torbich document that you finally got your hands on, so you'd... Uh, take this home, so, you know, it's kind of like uh, being a treasure hunter in those days, uh, getting those documents. Now, there's, you know, that all changed uh, with the Internet, and, of course, with the Internet, a lot of these rare, weird stuff are uh, more readily available, but, yeah, there was a certain magic to go to your mailbox and uh, discover what new mystery awaited you there. And it must have been the same deal with with the Discordians, you know. Oh, what yeah. am I going to get from yeah. my crazy friends this month? Now, amongst the amongst the 
not necessarily the original Discordians, but amongst uh, amongst Discordians of of the present day, you must be you must be pretty high ranking then, I guess. I mean, you're you're really the one sort of driving the Discordian train at this point. It's uh, kind of exciting. Uh, not exactly. <laughs> some what do you mean? Well, some appreciate the uh, work. There's others, uh, troll-like characters out there that uh, not so much. <laughs> well, what do you mean by that? Well, I need to know this. What kind of an asshole is going to give you shit about this? Just to be, just to be. Tell me more. Just tell me more. Oh, let's not go there. <laughs> oh, all right. Yeah. Okay. I'd rather not acknowledge. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Uh, that that is the thing. Don't feed the trolls. D- d- but do you yep. do you mean people? You don't mean people are like disappointed that you're doing this work because it's good stuff. I mean, or, or is it just people being assholes, or is it people being like Adam? Why are you putting out this silly book on Discordians? Uh, well, yeah, the Discordian community is made up of different uh, people, and there's some that. Uh, Claim uh, <laughs> oh. where all this stuff emerged from, and the people who were involved in it was a bunch of uh, uh, worthless, uh, acid-addled uh, hippies. That uh, <laughs> whatever the arguments may be, they men, a lot of them don't like Robert Anton Wilson or whatever. Oh. So the Discordian community is made up of uh, a lot of different uh, perspectives and uh, you know so you get that and maybe some feel threatened uh, you know that uh, I don't know who knows yeah no I know uh, what you mean yeah that's interesting yeah. it's interesting it's almost, ha- almost has turned into a religion of sorts where there's a schism over oh. you know it's, it's, it's like Stalin versus Lenin or something or something like that it's uh, it's crazy yeah so, uh, but yeah, a lot of people appreciate, and it's uh, helping uh, kind of bring about a bit of a uh, resurgence uh, to Discordianism, at least bringing to light, you know, the, uh, the early Discordians and how this all came about. Running parallel with this is the uh, cosmic uh, trigger play that uh, Daisy Iris Campbell is working on. Um, and uh, they actually had a crowdfunding to put this play on. I don't know how much time we had, and I contributed. To yeah, yeah. I'll ask you about the play. Uh, I'll ask you about the play after we close out the show because we got about forty-five seconds left. So, folks, check out Historia Discordia the book, as well as Historia Discordia the website. Thanks to all the folks in the chat room. Great questions tonight. You guys are awesome, and uh, they're saying thank you to Adam. So they they really did appreciate the show. Adam, you were sharp as a tack tonight. I can tell you've done a million interviews. On this book, because you, you got it down pat. You were you were in the Friedman zone. You were that you were that sharp. So I felt like oh, you were running cool, circles man. around me. You've left me agog many a times here. It's not just the Skype delay. I'm just like I'm just trying to keep up with you. So uh, just just great stuff. And once again, thanks to all the folks listening live. We're going to be signing off here in five seconds. A little well, ten says the British lady, but uh, who knows what's going on with these blog talk folks? Thanks for listening, folks. Good night. Okay, they're uh, they're off the train now, so uh, it's just you and I, Adam. But uh, we're still recording. So, tell me about the play, actually, because I wanted to ask you about that, but we didn't have uh, we we just never got around to it. So, let me give you the background <laughs> on all of this. Okay. <laughs> well, there's a lot of uh, players, and they're talking about a few different uh, things here in the uh, post, and uh, 
But uh, back in 76, this guy, Kenneth Campbell, uh, decided to stage the Illuminatus trilogy, which is a massive undertaking. And he also had all kinds of crazy synchronicities involved. And it became a pretty historic thing, like a five-hour uh, play. Just uh, became uh, pretty much legendary. And so that was like in uh, 76. And uh, during the course of that play, uh, during intermission or something, the director, uh, Kenneth Campbell, uh, and the lead who played Iris in the uh, production, they had sex backstage and conceived <laughs> Daisy Iris Campbell. They, they gave oh, wow. the name of Iris, middle name of Iris, after the Greek goddess just because she had been uh, conceived during the, uh, the Illuminatus play. They only put on it the production a few times. And so, yeah, kind of legendary history. They actually flew uh, Robert Anton Wilson out there to uh, take part in the uh, play where he's uh, stripped naked on stage with a bunch of other people, and I think they brought a goat on stage and weird <laughs> stuff like that. Oh, my God. Wrong to the goat. But, it, you know, there was different uh, weird uh, humorous rituals and uh, stuff. So uh, when Wilson... According to the legend in one book, he was pretty nervous about going on stage and nude, so he took some acid and brought some for a bunch of the other actors, too. So it was a pretty loose-knit, crazy thing going on. So that's where this cosmic trigger play comes in. Uh, Daisy Iris Campbell, she's the daughter of uh, Kenneth Campbell, who died a few years back, and she is a also a... Uh, stage uh, director, writer, and she's been heavily influenced by uh, Robert Anton Wilson uh, and uh, uh, really has helped uh, shape her life, you know, like a lot of people who've been inspired by the work of Robert Anton Wilson, and it's led her to uh, this production of the uh, Cosmic Trigger play, which is basically a uh, play based on uh, Wilson's book, Cosmic Trigger, which is biographical. And they also interweave portions of Illuminatus into this. And so, uh, as far as me inspiring, uh, perhaps... Yeah, I think I, I, I think I got mixed up there on my question. Yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> just just, just, so just an iota. goes away. <laughs> just, just an iota, maybe, because she uh, referenced uh, Prankster and the conspiracy for some of the... Uh, episodes in the play that will feature uh, Carrie Thornley and Greg Hill interacting with uh, Robert Anton Wilson. Nice. And so nice. in, with, with, with this thing, I was pretty excited when I heard about it. And uh, the concept, you know, originally, well, she wanted to uh, stage this play. And she got a lot of people volunteering, uh, helping her out uh, to be in the play and putting together music and props. And this is on their own time and dime right now because they hadn't had the uh, funding, but it's something she felt she needed to do because of different synchronicities to get the play done this year. Yeah. And uh, so uh, they decided at uh, one point uh, uh, in the play at the end, it talks about how Wilson, when he was on his own, towards the end of his life, 
uh, his health was in uh, bad shape and he was having trouble, didn't look like he was going to pay the rent. And that's when Douglas uh, Ruskoff, the writer, put out the word on the Internet or whatever, hey, Bob uh, needs help if anybody can donate money. So I, like a lot of other people, <laughs> donated money, and he got, you know, something like something to pay his rent and then, you know, several tens of thousands of dollars. And it basically yeah. saved his ass because he didn't have any savings and medical bills and all that. So at the uh, final scene in the Cosmic Trigger plane, she's let me see, see the, uh, what do we call it, the script? Or yeah, yeah, I don't the know the final scene is Wilson there, uh, and uh, he hears a knock on his door, and there's a check comes through for $23, and another for $23, and basically it's uh, recreating how people send him all this money towards the uh, end, which made his final days a heck of a lot easier. And she th- uh, thought uh, maybe the thing to do would to be like, uh, originally I think she was going to do a thing where pe- people can send him $23, to fund this thing, eventually she decided on a Kickstarter deal, and uh, the goal, they gave themselves, say, a month, and it wasn't a lot of time, a month or a month and a half to uh, raise 23,000 pounds, which is more like probably $30,000, and uh, that ended here recently, and they met their goal, they exceeded it, and so the the aim of all of this is to put... uh, the play on in Liverpool where all of this started and also have a three-day festival dealing with Robert Anton Wilson and Discordianism and all this stuff. So uh, that's what the crowdfunding went for. And so this is going to happen. The wheels are turning uh, on all this. And I have uh, received an invite to go out there and uh, to talk at the event. And so... uh, Looking forward to it. So that's what I was talking about, this resurgence. This all kind of happened when my uh, these books came out as well. And I donated a few of them. That, you know, they used them for uh, signed copies for perks during their uh, crowdfunding Kickstarter yeah. thingy. What's going on uh, with Jeff Turner? Have you heard from him recently? Is he in the news at all? Has he done anything dangerous? Has he found a new uh, love in his life? <laughs> Um, yeah, there was that incident with uh, Alyssa Milano a while back. You probably got wind of that, and uh, mm-hmm. you did hear about that one, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so nothing ever really came of that. I don't think they pressed <laughs> any charges. Uh, but he's been uh, uh, staying busy, uh, you know, on uh, on Comedy Central. Have you heard that uh, program called Adult Swim or something like that? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. It's like a channel. Uh, it's like a. It's like a. It's like a, the evening time on the Cartoon Network. So apparently uh, they found out about him somehow, probably through that movie. Uh, I think we're alone now. Yeah. And uh, he's he's shown up on Adult. Swim uh, or one of the shows on that. I've seen clips yeah. from them, <laughs> and uh, where they have little snippets or they're interviewing him. You know, he'll go off on <laughs> some little things. So, yeah, he's uh, he's been doing that on and off. Um, I was down in Southern California where him and Doug Hawes a few months ago were going to be down there, and I 
I was down there at the same time, but I got uh, had something come up. I got sick and I couldn't meet with them. But uh, they were going down there because uh, Jeff likes to go to the, all these Hollywood shows, you know, where you go there and have these has been <laughs> people sign autographs and that type of uh, stuff. So yeah. he spends a lot of his time doing that for some reason. I don't. <laughs> I'd rather watch. Uh, would rather watch paint dry, but uh, so you don't want to meet like the uh, you don't want to meet the guys who played the the second pair of Dukes of Hazard. Yeah, you stand in line and yeah, have uh, whoever T- touch the Night Rider car. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's what Jeff's been up to. I'm trying to think if there's been anything. Uh, other yeah, I think I would have heard yeah, of it if he was up to anything. It's kind of interesting that he's, that he's that he's you know mixing himself up in this pop culture. I'll have to try and seek out some of this Adult Swim stuff that he's been involved with, just because uh, it's kind of weird. Yeah, but well, that was I a strange movie that that film. Yeah, I think some of the stuff is up on YouTube's clips from this. Uh, the, oh, I'm sure. Adult Swim. Yeah, so you yeah. can see it. It's pretty amusing. I haven't seen all of the stuff he's done, but occasionally uh, a friend shared one on uh, Facebook, and I think I shared it. So uh, I don't. I'm not sure. Uh, it's not something he necessarily sought out. You know, well, I need to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if they, somebody saw him in that movie and thought, oh, it'd be interesting to get this guy from this comedy show to do little bits. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I find that guy pretty interesting. I, if I ever get out there to California, we have to uh, arrange a meeting. <laughs> oh God, I don't. It's, it's like. Uh, I mean, I <laughs> you know, I think you said that last time. I last <laughs> time I floated that idea, you were like, "I'll just drop you off. You can you can <laughs> call me call me yeah. six hours later when you're ready to come home." Oh my yeah. God. So uh, I, we tease the the NBA talk here, and since we've uh, since we've got just the hardcore listeners now uh, who are tuning in. We'll do it quickly because I know we've already gone two hours, 15 minutes, so quite a while already. But uh, someone wanted to know why you're a Hoops fan in the first place. So I guess the answer to that, Red Sun Superman. He's a fa- he must be fascinated with you, Adam. So be, be careful with this guy. But what's, what's, what, what's uh, behind the NBA fandom? It uh, comes from my youth. Uh, we had... Uh... My brothers were older, so we had a basketball hoop, and I uh, played with them, you know. Then I started watching the NBA pretty early, you know. Like, I was, uh, I remember uh, it was the 69-70 season, so (laughs) we're going back a while. So I was, whatever, 9, 10 years old. And uh, that was the first season I seriously started watching, you know. My friend, my brother was a uh, Lakers fan. And so you wouldn't see games that much. It's not like nowadays where you have all those games. You just have a game on the weekend if you're lucky, and that was it, the game of the week. And uh, so uh, one of the teams were the Knickerbockers. They called them Knickerbockers then as opposed to the Knicks, New York Knickerbockers. And I kind of like the name. (laughs) They got me interested in the team. (laughs) Yeah. And that season, they went on and won the NBA championship. So I got into that and watching basketball. But I also played them. I was a pretty good basketball player, you know, when I was in 
uh, you know, early years. So this is kind of a revelation here. You started out as a Knicks fan. How did you end up as a Lakers mm-hmm. fan? How did that how that transition uh, happen? I'm getting ready to switch from the Lakers too, but uh Uh oh. The uh uh so I was kind of following the Knicks. They won uh they had some great players back in the day. And so they won then they won another championship in seventy three or seventy four. And then the team kind of changed, and uh, you know how teams do. And so over the years, they, all the players uh, went uh, left, went other places. The coach left, and they pretty much uh, sucked and uh, hadn't totally, uh, you know, moved to the Lakers yet. But uh, then uh, I saw the uh, college championship the year. Uh, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, you know, that was great. Michigan against yeah. Indiana State and kind of, yeah, those are some great players. And started watching Magic Johnson this first year. And uh, early on, man, I was telling people, this guy is going to be one of the all-time greats, man. <laughs> and yeah. you just see it, see it in him. And, you know, some people say, yeah, well, come on. Uh, a little early in the career, you know, halfway through the first season. They went on, won the championship that season. So, for whatever reason, yeah, I jumped on the uh, bandwagon, dug the uh, Magic Man and the Lakers. and You can switch in midstream. There's no reason not to do that. I think I'm ready yeah. to uh, switch, switch over to the Warriors after uh, so many years. Really? I, I, n- I never really liked uh, Kobe as a person. <laughs> mm, yeah, he's very unlikable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the team, yeah. The team is really, uh, they're terrible now. They've been uh, mismanaged, I think. And so um, I really uh, dig in watching the Warriors the last couple of years. You know, they're a lot of fun, Stephen Curry and the other players. So we'll see how we mm. get in the season. I think uh, the Lakers are going to be the wor- one of the worst teams. I'd be surprised if they made the uh, playoffs. So. You know, the Warriors are the well, team I'm going to be rooting for in the playoffs anyway. You know that the Lakers just got Carlos Boozer, though. Today. <laughs> Big so, work. You got that, that going for you. Yeah, they're pretty sad are? right now. I mean, if that's, that? the best they, if that's the best they can do, I mean, he's pretty washed up. Yeah, yeah. Well, they claimed Boozer. him off waivers. That's how bad it was. So. Yeah, they got Jeremy Lin. I thought, uh that's not – I mean, he had his time in uh, New York, and he's a decent player, but, uh, you know, they don't have anybody else, really. They have Kobe, but then he's coming off uh, uh, another an injury. Problem, right? Yeah, yeah, you don't know how he's going to be, and they wrapped up all their money in his big uh, fat contract, you know, as a reward. But And so if he would have took less money, but who's going to take less money, they – so uh, that I don't see them being any good until he retires, unless they can swing, pull something out of a uh, magic uh, hat, you know, where they bring in a couple of top-flight players all of a sudden. Yeah, well, you know. they had their chance this year, and they couldn't do it with LeBron and uh, Carmelo. So we'll see if, uh, mm-hmm. I guess they'll make a run at Kevin Durant maybe next. Who knows? Uh, we'll Kobe see. Yeah, but 
Hobie yeah. will be gone by then. I can't see him being around much longer, man. He's <laughs> got some mileage on him. Yeah, yeah. I don't expect he'll last much longer. Well, it's just, we'll see who gets rebuilt better in first, uh, the Celtics or the Lakers. Both teams are in the toilet. What happened, dude? We were on top of the world like six years ago. It's terrible. That's how it goes, man. Yeah. What do you think of LeBron going back to Cleveland? I was a little surprised at that. Uh, I mean, I wasn't surprised that he would maybe want to go back there sometime just because of all his ties and because of all the, how it went down with what they call that, the decision and all that yeah. nonsense. But I thought there would be, uh, you know, there was that bad blood between him and the owner. They were talking, basically the owner was talking a bunch of trash about him afterwards. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think LeBron played it uh, pretty cool for the most part. So I thought because of that, you know, I didn't see him necessarily thinking maybe he would want to go back there, but because of all the stuff that went down with the owner, uh, that wouldn't be his first choice if he was going to leave uh, Miami. But here you go. I guess they got together and worked uh, things out. Yeah, yeah. I kind of so, like it in a way because it blows up the blows up that super team in Miami. So at least it shakes things up a little bit. But now they're saying they're saying that that uh, Cleveland's going to trade Andrew Wiggins for uh, uh, or uh, yeah, is that Andrew Wiggins? Wiggins for love, essentially. Yeah. They're going to trade. They're willing to trade Andrew Wiggins now. They've changed their stance. So they, they could, it could be a LeBron, Kevin Love, uh, Kyrie Irving team. It's going to be unstoppable if, if that happens. So who's, who knows what's going to happen? Well, the Warriors are also in the mix for getting uh, Kevin Love. Oh, I see how it is. You have already jumped ship, I think. <laughs> no, I just, <laughs> just uh, those those are the main players I've heard. Uh, yeah, you hear different things that, that uh, yeah, they'd have to give Wiggins from uh, Cleveland and the, uh, who the hell had them, the uh, Timberwolves. They've been talking to yeah. the Warriors. The Warriors have been the top team in this because they've been talking about, uh, they basically, uh, the Timberwolves want, uh, what's his name, uh, Clay Thompson. And David Lee was going to be part of that deal, but the Warriors don't. I don't blame them. They don't want to give up uh, Clay Thompson, but they have, the Warriors have other pieces though, uh, like uh, what's his name. Um, anyway, they have some other pieces that are attractive. They, yeah. I think they have the most to offer, and they're just holding out because uh, it doesn't sound like they want to give up Clay Thompson. I don't blame you to have that backcourt with Thompson and Curry, those guys. Uh, uh, people who have been around forever are saying that's the best shooting backcourt <laughs> in the history of the NBA, including you know people like Jerry West and others. And uh, they're not just throwing that around. Those guys, when they're on, you know, they're incredible uh, backcourt. So they can keep those together and get Kevin Love and keep all the other yeah. Pieces, you know, they'd have to give away a few of their young players who are good players. I think so. I think that's why they got a good chance of getting well, Kevin Love, and he he would fit uh, good there just because. Look at the shooters they got already. He's a big guy, man. He can uh, step out and spread the floor too, and shoot and rebound, and so they they you know they're already a deadly offensive team with him there. 
I could see them uh, making a serious run. Well, now you're really disappointed in a way, because yeah, all that, then they'll be your team. I see how it is. How am I supposed to trash talk the, the the Golden State Warriors, dude? That's not as fun as trash talking the Lakers here. <laughs> Going to be tough for me. I'll adjust, Adam. I'll adjust. I'll, I'll trash talk uh, things, the Warriors. Things but maybe I need to. Maybe I'll, I need to jump ship. I can't though. I'll, I'll never leave the uh, San Francisco Giants or the uh, Niners. I don't think, but it's just. Uh, no, I'm, that's not, I'm, not, well, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not filling it with the Lakers, and I've never really uh, loved Kobe's game. But uh, I heard somebody posted on Facebook the other day that a friend of theirs had been a uh, limo driver for Kobe recently when he was in. Uh, oh, some maybe it was L.A. I'm not sure. They spent seven hours uh, driving Kobe around one day, yeah. and he uh, let left them zero for a tip. Oh, what a dick. <laughs> Jeez. That's that's what a dick. Form, you know? Yeah, I mean, look, those guys with so much money. and <laughs> You heard that, uh, who's that uh, guy? He's ESPN analyst now. Um, he was on uh, the, uh, uh, who was? Uh, Rick, the, uh, Rick Barry? Tampa. No, Tampa Bay uh, Buccaneers, the uh, defensive lineman. Uh, you know the guy I'm talking about? He's on ESPN now. Not off the top of my head, no, but it's okay. Yeah, he's kind of a loudmouth uh, dude, but, yeah, he made some announcement the other day on some show that, yeah, my policy is I don't uh, give tips. Okay, weird. <laughs> so I go these people I wouldn't announce that. You're going to get uh, <laughs> people will remember that when you go into their establishment. Yeah, they're going to spit in your food. Exactly. It's not a good thing to, yeah. Jesus, you should be a bad, should be, if you're rich, you should be a good tipper. I don't get that, but weird. Mm-hmm. For Jesus. sure, yeah. People, people work their butts off in the service industry, you know? Yeah, some of the last jobs we have left in this country is the service industry. Mm-hmm. As sad as that <laughs> sounds. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen LeBron play? Because uh, the, the whole thing about him going to Cleveland's kind of changed my mind about him in a lot of ways. I used to think he was kind of a dick, but now I'm kind of like, well, he may be a dick, but he's done some good things here, so I kind of like him. And he is sort of like, you know, the new Michael Jordan, so maybe I should see him play at some point in my life so I can say that I did. Uh, have you ever seen him play? Never uh, seen him. Uh, my impression of him or I felt, yeah, I, <laughs> I was kind of down on him for a few things, but nothing, it's not like he's out doing criminal stuff or whatever, you know, so people need to cut him some slack. He made a bad decision with that decision thing and other stuff, you know, how they had that big ceremony after they got the those three guys together and all that ridiculous yeah. uh, stuff, but those were just, Bad decisions, you know. That uh, obviously he wouldn't have. Uh, he won't make those again. He seems pretty all right, dude. You know, I don't know how well he tips people, but uh, <laughs> it's like that throwback. Yeah. I, there, Excuse me. There's there was a story. Uh, some of these guys uh, a couple of years ago, uh, LeBron was riding a bicycle to go to the wherever they were. Uh, a game was where they were training or something caused these big traffic jams. It's like, what the hell? 
doing this crap for, you know. It's like uh, look, the look at me type stuff. It's because you got to uh, ride a bicycle in public, you know, you're going to uh, cause a big traffic jam and chaos. That, uh, but, uh, who knows. What if he was making a statement about the, uh, about the, you know, the prison of celebrity? <laughs> yeah. You didn't think about that, did you, did you, Gorelli? <laughs> he seems okay. He seems like less of a dick than Kobe. Wow. That's 90% of the population. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, part of the uh, I love I like the NBA. I like it a lot, but part of me wishes they would contract. I think we talked about this before. Like you talking about the Minnesota mm-hmm. Timberwolves and trading Kevin Love and shit. It's like why? You know what they should do is uh, I don't know how many teams don't make the playoffs, but that's how many they need to just cut out because it's only a handful of teams now. It's only you know it's only like what like maybe eight or nine teams. <laughs> they need to cut out like a lot of those teams. Well, and I apologize just, to the people like in the Midwest, but a lot of those teams in the Midwest like stink. If you don't have the uh, t- teams that don't make the playoffs, then why have the regular season? Why don't you just go into the playoffs? For seeding, yeah, okay. You cut, <laughs> maybe just cut out. Maybe just cut out five. Five of the uh, non. That's a good point. I didn't think of that. Yeah. They ain't gonna do it, man. There's too much money to be made. No, it's too much money to be made. Yeah. It's like uh, well. The, the the regular seasons, to, you know, it'd be better if they didn't play as many games because then there'd be more quality games, and it'd be better if they didn't have so many. Everybody and his mother, <laughs> all those uh, teams in the playoffs, you know, it gets watered down. Yeah. But uh, they're not they're not going to give up any of that uh, money, and it's like the NFL pushing to have all these extra games. Right now, it's like, man, these guys play enough games. You got them playing those silly. Uh, Preseason games, uh, yeah, they beat the beat the hell out of each other. The less you know, but uh, the uh, they're making making bank in the NFL, so they want to maximize and you know beat the hell out of these guys and get everything they can out of them. Did did I ever so, ask like, you about I, the God? I, I don't begrudge anybody in the NFL making as much money as they can because. Uh, Especially some of those guys that aren't the big name players. That might be all the money they ever make. You know, they sign a couple million dollar contract and they get out and their brains all mush. And you know, uh, your average uh, person, you know, average Joe on the street, uh, they don't make uh, two thousand or a couple million in a couple years, but they might make more than that over the course of their you know career or whatever they're. Uh, doing, but that's the thing with those NFL players, a lot of them, even after a few seasons, their bodies are beat up and they take a few shots in the head, you know, they're not real functional, so cut yeah. cut those dudes some slacks to, you know, get as much <laughs> money as they can. Now, I get, I'll ask you one more thing before I let you go, because I know we've got a long time mm-hmm. here. Uh, did you... Did I ever talk to you about the idea that Bill Simmons from ESPN floated? To, uh, it's kind of interesting in a way. Uh, I, li- I like the idea a lot, where you take the teams that don't make the playoffs, you take the, the, the seven seeds, make it on each side, right? Uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in real life, eight do. But here in this scenario, you take seven, and then the bottom two seeds, and all the other teams that don't make the playoffs play in a play-in tournament to get the eighth seed, uh, which would, he thinks, <laughs> discourage tanking. 
and also add a whole other element to the, you know, to the playoffs and exciting sort of uh, teams would have to play to still get in the playoffs. So, and the weird part is that they just said to yesterday that this Adam Silver guy is talking about doing a tournament in the middle of the season in Las Vegas for no real reason or anything, just a, a prestige tournament. Mm. So, and they want to discourage tanking. So maybe the whole thing's going to come together and that idea will actually happen, the play-in tournament. But I think it's a good idea. It could be kind of fun. I, I, I would not want to see the uh, NBA playoffs dragged out any longer than it is. Hmm. Look how look how long they take now because they used to uh, – they've extended it, you know, over time. Originally with the playoffs, they didn't have as many teams, and the first round were actually the best two out of three. So then, yeah. you know, they went – and now in between games, it's like – uh, two or three days sometimes. So, you know, seven-game series takes like two weeks to get through the thing. <laughs> right. It's too right. much to be, I, you know. And so... Yeah. Uh, so adding this other tournament, uh, it might be interesting, but, yeah, you're going to add just more, you know, yeah. more time to extend okay. the playoffs. I'd, re- I'd rather see it move along faster. All right. Well, maybe you'd have to make the play-in tournament happen over, like, do it NCAA kind of style, where you play it, like, very quickly and over the course of, like, two days. That's the challenge yeah. to get into the tournament. You have to win the play-in tournament that takes, like, that takes, like, three days or whatever. You, see, you, play, you play three nights in a row. It'll be kind of interesting to do. We'll see. Yeah, well, we'll see especially, especially if it's uh, your team, yeah. You'll... <laughs> yeah. That probably... That's cool. That's like the wild card, you know, where it gave more exactly. teams yeah, a chance. I mean. So, yeah, get more fans uh, into it. So, yeah, it might be I think it could happen. Crap. Yeah. But these things take forever, so we'll see if it ever does. Um, quickly, before I let you go, how are your Giants looking? I think they're, they they were doing pretty good there for a little bit, dude. What happened? Uh, I think that the, the Dodgers made a run at them, is my understanding of it, but I've kind of fallen out of baseball because the Red Sox are doing so poorly, but... What's what's going on with the uh, with the Giants? Until uh, about June six or so, they had the best record in baseball, and yeah. then since since then they've had the worst record in baseball. Oh God, really? And why why is that? I think uh, they just uh, hit. Well, they're very. Uh, they got all their pieces together, and they're. Uh, Healthy, obviously. If they're healthy, they'll have everybody. But once they lose key uh, people, sometimes uh, they're pretty. They're pretty thin. So that's part of it. Maybe they can kind of uh, before the trade deadline do a few things. And there's some talk about that. Uh, so different uh, players got cold at the same time. There's a couple of injuries. The uh, Bullpen had probably been up to that point <laughs> until they started losing. They were uh, probably the best bullpen, and they just started getting uh, beat up, and it was weird. The, uh, all, and you know how baseball is, just how streaky it is. Uh, mm, yeah. you know? <laughs> uh, they, uh, there was a series. They, yeah, they had the best record in baseball, you know, and I listened to all the eight – there's a, a station out of a sports station out of uh, San Francisco, and you know, talking about what's going on. So they've got they've been on the road recently, and they have the best record in baseball. Then after that, they're going 
going to be at home for uh, ten days or ten games. It's yeah. like they're re- they're really going to make some hay now, you know. The talk was because they're usually <laughs> good at home. And they end up losing all, all those games. They played the Rockies at uh, oh god home. They played the Rockies at home. They thought okay, the Rockies have been sucking, and so in each of those games they had a lead. The Giants did going into the uh, like eighth, ninth inning. Yeah. You know, and uh, the bullpen gave up. In each of those three games, the same thing happened. They had a lead late in the game, and then the bullpen gave it up. So the uh, they cut the bullpen kind of lost their mojo, and that just started a funk where they went into kind of a uh, spiral. I think they'll be okay, you know. It's, uh, and it looks like they're coming out of it. Their last game, their last game is pretty interesting because uh, who are they playing? I think it was the Diamondbacks there. San Francisco, and uh, <clears throat> Bumgardner, he's uh, the pitcher. He's also a hell of a hitter. He Previously this year, he hit a, a grand slam, and in this game, both he and Posey hit grand slams, which was uh, a first for Major League Baseball history. Of course, they're all That's amazing. New, new records. But <laughs> yeah, Bumgardner's a serious... Uh, Hitter, nobody should take him lightly. You know, there's even talk sometimes that in certain games they'll they'd move him down in the batting order. You know, to maybe a, the seventh spot just because he's he's that good uh, hitter. Mon- money, yeah, they could probably he could probably become a position player and uh, be a good uh, hitter. Yeah, obviously he's you know he's hit a couple grand slams and maybe a couple more home runs this year and is probably hitting around. Uh, 250 or 270 for a pitcher, so it's awesome <laughs> seeing him come to bat. Yeah, that's pretty through. cool. Yeah, and nice, so nice. that was that was that was a good sign. That was right before the All Star break. So yeah, the Giants they lost a ton of games, and the uh, you knew the Dodgers were going to have to come around, so they did. And uh, now the Dodgers have a one game lead. This is right. Yeah. Right, going into the all-star break. We'll be fighting it out here over the summer. It should be interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. All right, man. Well, uh, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you sticking around for like an extra 40 minutes. Uh, It was awesome. And uh, great great show. Like I said, uh, you were sharp as a tack, man. You were really really on on point. And uh, and I really enjoyed the stuff. I was... A lot of times I felt bad interrupting you because I was so into the stories here on this this whole Discordian stuff. So I hope folks check it out. Folks, uh, there's still folks listening, I presume. Adam, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's devolved into a regular uh, old-fashioned conversation between us. But uh, but thanks to all the folks who listened. And, and Historia Discordia is the book. It's also the website. Just punch in Historia Discordia on your Google machine. You'll get all the information on it. And uh, I can't put it over enough. I really did enjoy it quite a bit. And look forward to... Uh, the Carrie Thornley Oswald book again. We need to revisit that whole topic again. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Sure. And, uh, thank you again, my friend. Thanks. I appreciate it. All right. I got to do the plugs here. So uh, if you want to listen to me do the plugs, you're more than welcome. Or if you want to uh, say goodnight, you're more than welcome to as well. They're going to disconnect us once I uh, end the show with the plugs. So uh, I will not be well, offended let, if you want to say goodnight. <laughs> let me... Uh, Thank all the uh, people listening and sending in the questions. That was uh, pretty cool. And uh, yeah, sorry about it. That uh, <laughs> us stepping on each other is 
probably as much uh, my fault or the delay or whatever, but uh, it all works No, no, no. It's all good. Don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. I thought it was a great show, so it's all good. I think think it was a Skype thing more than anything. I I have a... a, An inbred hatred of Skype since I'm so old school. But as I was getting ready to do the show tonight, it's like my phone's like falling apart here. Uh, you know, I can barely move around, and things things all go cahoots when I uh, move around on this phone. So it's like I need to get into the in, into 2014 here, uh, in, technology wise. So maybe maybe I'll do so. But uh, that that would be helpful uh, if people uh, segue into the plugs here. That would be great if people could help us out. So uh, of course you're listening to Banal of America. You can find us at Benallofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. You can find out more from us on Facebook as well. Just punch in Benal of America on Facebook. And as I was just alluding to, you just listened to a two-hour and 40-minute conversation here with Adam Go-Rightly, and it was absolutely free. And the first two hours were live. And all that cost me money, folks, sorry to say. So I turn to the BOA Audio listeners to help us out when they can. If you can do so, you can make a donation at PayPal. You can find that at Benal of America. There's a big PayPal button. And if you don't trust PayPal and who really trusts the Internet nowadays, I don't know anyone who does, you can uh, send your donations to Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass. 01866. Now, traditionally, we become the time in the program where I plug the next edition of the show, but I don't have anyone in particular lined up right this moment. I have a couple of folks in mind. My schedule's been absolutely crazy this summer, as the hardcore BOA audio listeners know, but I've got a couple of people in mind. Hopefully, we'll roll out a new episode for you next week, if not in a couple of weeks for sure, because I have a previous BOA audio guest. Here's a great teaser for folks. Previous BOA audio guest. Uh, he's heading to Washington, D.C. in a few days, and it looks like he'll be testifying uh, before Congress on the topic he discussed on the show. So uh, I'll let that ruminate in your minds. He's going to be maybe appearing at a congressional panel. I don't know for sure, but it looks like it. Uh, and that's going to be, once he does that, he'll come on BOA Audio to talk all about it. So that'll be in a couple of weeks, I believe. So run to your uh, BOA Audio archive and take a look and try and figure out who that might be. And with all that said, Adam, thank you once again for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it, my friend. Uh, always great talking to you and just you're doing yeoman's work, man, finding all this stuff. It's you know, you you you're like I, I alluded to it earlier, I kinda said it earlier, you know, you're carrying the torch here for the true Discordian movement and sort of keeping the keeping the name and the word alive on this thing and, and it's really amazing stuff. Folks really you should check it out. It's really some breathtaking and thought provoking material. So kudos to you, my friend. Thanks again, Tim. I appreciate all, right. all the support. Take care. Thanks a lot, folks.